welcome to the Giddy Carousel of Pop, the podcast that takes an old issue of Britain's brightest pop mag smash hits and has a good nose through its pages with a guest. I'm Simon Galloway, and he's always ready for some satin sheet action. <laughs> More of which later, <laughs> it's Gavin Hogg. Hello. It's true, I am yeah. always up for a bit of satin I'm, sheet I know, action. You're a, you're a classy guy, so yeah, what, what, what can I say? So before we set the carousel spinning in motion, Gav, who's been supporting the podcast by buying us a coffee and who have we got to say hello to and stuff like that? We need to say a big thank you to Doug Grant. Uh, he said, have another coffee, gang. I always smile when I see a new episode drop into my listening queue. Keep up the great work. No pressure. Thank on you, us, Doug. Keep up you. being great yourself. Much appreciated. <laughs> and I also need to say a big hello and a thank you to Joel at Brighter Day uh, Record Shop, who sent us the fantastic Smash Hits board game, which we're yet to play yeah. because of lockdown and all that. We've just not had a chance. But yeah. we will be having a game of that soon. So thank you very much, Joel at Brighter Day. Much appreciated. It's on the agenda. Yes, indeed. And if you want to support us by buying us a coffee, you too can do the same. It's very simple and it can be just a one-off thing or you can buy us as many coffees as you like, as often as you like. It's up to you. Just go to coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com slash pod, and chuck us a few quid to help keep the carousel spinning. So, as myself and Si prepare to crank up the carousel once more, rumours fly around the fairground that an important visitor is on their way. We pay no heed to these flights of fancy. Only last year someone told us that Leo Sayer was desperate to come and take a spin on a horse, but he never materialised. <laughs> Sai greases the axles and the crankshafts, while I brush the horse's manes and sweep the floor. In the distance, I think I can faintly hear someone whistling the incredible string bands A Very Cellular Song. <laughs> it can only mean one thing. The rumours were true and the co-inventor of the carousel is on his way to inspect us. We redouble our efforts and are just mopping up the last dregs of spilt sugary tea, clearing away discarded fag ends and vinegar-soaked pages of the Daily Mirror, when, looming into view, comes the unmistakable figure of our spiritual guru, the boss man, la grande fromage, Mr Mark Ellen. Will we pass the inspection? We'll find out in due course. But first, let us welcome Mr Ellen on board and, in time-honoured tradition, ask him to select a horse to ride on. Mr. Allen, which horse are you choosing from the grand array you see before you? Well, I, I, so I just imagine a carousel and choose a, 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 a particular mount. Is that yeah, the plan? Any, any particular standout? Is it, I mean, there's somebody already on it I've got to kick off. I mean, is Toya already on one? I've got to ask her politely. <laughs> she's always on it. <laughs> she's on it. I don't know. I mean, you know, just the, just the, the, the giddiest, uh, you know, gaudiest... Um, <laughs> one with the longest mane and the most amusing tail. I don't know. Put me on there anyway. That's Let's perfect. Start. Right, you're going on that one. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so, Mark, the carousel will start spinning upon the truthful answering of this question. Have you ever been sick in a gumboot? Oh, no, I haven't. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I regret it now because so many people clearly have. <laughs> And their mothers had played golf and they knew what colour Tuesday was. So, yeah, to be discussed. <laughs> in that case, we're off. We are indeed. Uh, and the carousel has spun us back to the smash hits of the 11th to the 24th of June, 1981, when our guest was features editor of the mag. And as ever, if you want to read along with us, you can do just that, thanks to the Like Punk Never Happened and Smash Hits Remembered websites. You'll find links to the scans of this issue in the episode show notes, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of the hits. 
You'll also find these links on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, and we'll post them on our Twitter and Facebook feeds as well. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at Giddy Pop Pod. So I think, Mark, before we dive into this issue of Smash It's, I think we, we need to find out, go, go back to the beginning and how you first became involved with the magazine. Oh, right. Well, I mean, I'd been, I was one of the old lags who'd been in the music press. So I'd been at Record Mirror and then uh, The Enemy and then something called New Music News. So I was kind of, we were all old lags, you know, same with Dave, I'd been at Sounds and, and Ian Birch, you know. Um, you know, I'd been on the road with Bram Tchaikovsky's Battle Axe. I'd been, I'd done Steel Pulse in Berlin, you know, I'd been, you know, sitting there with Cabaret Voltaire and Gang of Four Gigs. And uh, it, it, what was, I, I just suddenly, I think I'd met Nick Logan on a bus to a Clash gig on a coach and got on very well with him. And I kind of knew him anyway from Smash Hits because he was there when I started, from Enemy rather. And he'd started up Smash Hits and, uh, and moved off and started The Face by then, actually. And I think mentioned to Dave Hepworth, this guy, you know, why don't you give this guy a go? You know, give him a try. Um, because he, he might, and I think David read my writing and thought it was okay. So I got a call and was asked if I'd like to interview um, the Flying Lizards who had a, um, a single out called Money at the time. And I did them, and I think I did, I passed the test, and I did Julian Cope afterwards. And then suddenly I got the call saying, you know, would you like to come and... I don't think I was even interviewed, actually. I think they just offered me a job. And it was unbelievably liberating. Because if you'd been in the enemy, and it was all, you know, the Redskins, and it was uh, Rock Against Racism, and it was kind of, you know what I mean, that kind of rather dour time of... <laughs> Joy Division and Einstein Zender Neubauten. And, uh, you know, they had this kind of philosophy that the enemy forced groups to kind of conform with. Have you read any Kierkegaard and all that kind of thing? And they were very disapproving of groups that didn't quite fit the mould. And Smash It's was completely the opposite. They were just interested in everybody. And part of the advantage was that we were all quite old. You know, I was 26, I think, when I wrote my first thing. Dave was a tiny bit older and Ian was a little bit older and Neil Tennant was a year younger than me. We were, all, we were all kind of too old to be doing it. And none of that music was really aimed at us. It was all aimed at the kind of teenage market. So there were things that you liked. I mean, I loved ABC and I loved uh, Human League and various others. But a lot of the time, you know, Toya and, um, you know, Hazel O'Connor, <laughs> Hazel Dean, they were not aimed at us. And so the joy was that you just had to find something interesting to write about, to find some kind of form of entertainment in any of those people. And uh, that's how I started, really. I think it must have been about around the time of this issue, 1981. And uh, there it was in Carnival Street. And I was looking down from the window into the NME offices and seeing all my old pals still there, Manning the barricades after their Rock Against Racism <laughs> shows and off to review the Redskins and thought, thank God I've escaped all that. This is just heaven. This is so <laughs> much fun. So that's broadly it. That's how I got in there, I think. Yeah, you mentioned a few people who you were working with uh, back then. What, what do you remember you know, of, of those characters in, in the office and, and what was that office dynamic like? Oh, the office was fantastic. I mean, it was really kind of so old-fashioned. You know, it had a switchboard with a girl called Sam Archer who ran it. 
And uh, you had to take little plugs with jack plugs out of the wall and connect them to different sockets to be able to put the PR from Warner Brothers through to uh, the bits <laughs> desk or whatever. I mean, it was extraordinary. <laughs> it was all electrosets and projectors and people projecting slides onto onto layouts and uh, tracing it all in and really, you know, spray mounts and all that kind of analog world of, of, of printing, which is amazing when you think about it now. You walked around with loads of old transparencies stuck to your shoes, stuck on with spray mount, you know. But that was great. Um, there was Dave. There was uh, was Ian Birch. He'd arrived from uh, Melody Maker and also New Music News. Uh, again, thrilled to be kind of working on this kind of daft kind of, uh, you know, uh, just throw away pop music rather than the kind of the intensity of being at the AMM. Um, there was a girl called Bev, bopping Bev Hillier, who was fantastic, who did the lyrics and whose main job was to sit there checking that uh, the right number of oogies were in the lyrics to boogie oogie oogie or whatever it was <laughs> very important job you know you paid 500 quid for the lyrics from the publishers and if they weren't right the leaders the readers were incredibly upset about it quite right they had to be absolutely spot on um there was a lovely guy there was sam archer as i mentioned before who i think we we, we kind of she looked like a kind of a girl from a 60s um a TV show with a kind of fabulous uh, 60s bouffant haircut. There was Rod Sop, the ad man, who was sensational. We used to go to lunch with Rod in the cafe, and he always had the same guy. He was just a real banter merchant. It was so funny. He went on to be a, the guy who did the face and various things afterwards, you know. And uh, his main thing was rare steak. He always wanted a rare steak. So they'd say to him in the restaurant, how do you want your steak? And he'd say, just just break its horns off, wipe its ass, and slap it on the plate. And then when the steak arrived, he would do the same pantomime every time. He would lean forward with a look of mock surprise and go, do I hear lowing? And he'd say, a good vet can get that back on its feet in 10 minutes. So he was fantastic. So a real kind of a real, you know, banter merchant. And uh, and Neil Tennant, who arrived later on, who had come from, uh, I think it was Marvel, Marvel he was working for, was it Marvel uh, the Publishing, was it? I think, yes. And um, he was really, really good value, you know. Uh, he'd been a big T-Rex fan, as had Ian. And I said, we all had, actually. And so that was our kind of memory of what pop music used to be like. You know, We had to think of the way we felt about T-Rex was the way, you know, the kids were going to be feeling about Duran Duran or whatever. And Neil was very funny. Imagine uh, he invented a load of kind of um, uh, of kind of imaginary rock bands played by members of the staff. There's one he cooked up called A Man Alone, and A Man Alone was a kind of uh, was based on Ian Birch. In fact, it was Ian Birch who was his pop star, and he could see him on the cover of a of an album sleeve, kind of just with a, with a kind of looking wistful and windblown on a, on a, on a remote seashore, um, looking enigmatic with a cigarette. And he invented a girl, for the, the three girls, Bev and a girl called Petra and Kimberly Leston. He invented a band called the Saturday Girls, which was brilliant, actually, because this was before Banana Armour. And it was, the idea was they were just three kind of knockabout girls just in the clothes they wore every day who were going to form a, a group and kind of dance to Motown songs. So very kind of very prophetic, you know. And Neil was, the, as you mentioned earlier, was the co-inventor of the concept of the Giddy Carousel of Pop. And the basic idea, if I remember there, was, was that there was a kind of imaginary carousel full of horses, maybe about 10 of them or whatever. And each issue, you always had to have a certain number of groups always represented because they were the, they were the key groups of the time. 
So you imagine that on those horses would be Spanda Ballet and Culture Club, or it was, and Duran Duran, and, uh, you know, the, the Thompson Twins or Bad Manners or whoever. And they were the kind of big stories that had to be represented in the magazine. And and occasionally one of those people would be booted off the carousel of pop and replaced by somebody else. <laughs> and I loved that. We'd have those ridiculous conversations, you know. Is Gary Newman still you know, up the dumper? Because the dumper was the place you went when you went on the carousel of pop. The dumper was a kind of imaginary, sad kind of seaside boarding house that smelt of uh, of boiled cabbage and unlit gas pilots. <laughs> and uh, the place where the pop stars went after they'd been on the giddy carousel. And you say, well, is Gary Newman still up the dumper? Oh, contraire! You know, the pale-faced, nine-pint blood donor android has suffered a regrettable slump in popularity despite his bold new image and progressive machine-made melodies and is now in a room next to the Thompson Twins choosing wallpaper. <laughs> you know, and, and Doug Trendle of Bad Manners has been over to, um, you know, offer him a cup of sugar. And I love that whole idea, this sort of daft thing. Who, who was up the dumper and who was down the dumper and who was on the giddy carousel of pop? So yeah, that's how we. That's how we. And actually, women's magazines kind of went on to do that. I remember Grazia used to say they had the same thing. It wasn't actually a giddy carousel, but there were ten girls that always had to be in every issue. It was Courtney Cox, and it was Jennifer Aniston, it was Sienna Miller, or whoever it was, you know. And then they'd boot one of those out and replace them with another one. They were the ten that had to always be represented. So yeah, that was how. That's how. That's kind of broadly how it worked. So it did actually serve a purpose. It wasn't just. Oh, it did. Yeah. It wasn't just some wild fantasy in the in the office. <laughs> no, 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 no. There was a, there was a, a weird kind of logic to it. And the carousel is still spinning decades later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Neil was very Neil. Neil invented very uh, smash its expressions. Back, back, back was one of his. You were up the dumper, then you were down the dumper, and then you were back, back, back. And police was one of his two. I think actually. <laughs> And he may have invented, we may have invented Dame David Bowie. I can't remember. I think we did invent all that. It got carried on by everybody else and Sir Lord Lucan and Mercury. And I can remember realising that 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 smashes was kind of affecting language. I can remember going to QPR and uh, they had a a striker called Les Ferdinand. I can remember the crowd, 27,000 people singing, Leslie Ferdinand, Sir Leslie Ferdinand. And I kind of, I felt that had probably come from smashes. We were the first people to call people. Dame and Sir and stuff. <laughs> so yeah, we were we were we were changing the language. Also, we invented the idea of snogging people, but I don't think you actually snogged anyone at that point. And we had and kiss ups. Having a kiss up was a kind of innocent uh, physical encounter. And harmless fizzy pop was what you drank when you were, you know, when you wanted to to give the impression that pop stars were pissed, but you couldn't really. Uh, and rock and roll mouthwash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, as well as changing the language, I, I know you you mentioned uh, when you were in touch with us before about Smash It's almost been like the Facebook of its day as well. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, yeah. I mean, pre Facebook. I mean, that's how you met. I mean, we. I when I I started, there were about two hundred fifty thousand readers, and I think there were not readers, and people who bought it. Sorry, sales five hundred thousand when I left. So, let's say there were two or three, maybe four. Or, you know, an issue that's you're talking about about a million people, and that's how they connected, really. You know, that they and it was incredibly important. You're in that slightly sulky stage of your life when you're fed up with your parents, you've locked yourself in your bedroom, and um, you get your copy of Smash Hits, and uh, you you write with your your wonderful colored biros, you know, uh, handwritten letters to Smash Hits about signed, um, you know, Mark Armand's jock strap or um, 
you know, um, Nick Rhodes' air, uh, eyeliner or whatever it was, uh, you know, <laughs> thrashing out the important issues of the day. And there were just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I can remember the sacks of mail being brought up every morning. And that's how they connected, you know, and, that's that, and, and being part of those pop tribes was incredibly important. You know, the idea that you were a Durani or you were a, an ant person and were in, in, in connected to other people was really, really important, particularly for people who lived outside of London, I think. And what about, if I say to you, the names Joe Boxers or Roman Holiday? What can you tell us about them? Joe Boxers and Roman Holiday? Well, I can tell you that I put them on the cover of Smash Hits. Idiotically, I mean, that was a very difficult thing. You know, you had to listen to the Mike Reed show and you had to make predictions as to, you know, what in three or four weeks time would be on top of the pops. Because that was the whole thing. You had to get the lyrics that got me the hit lyrics of the songs that were on top of the pops at that time. And if you got it wrong, you'd spend all that money buying a lyric that, um, you know, that no one was going to be remotely interested because it wasn't a hit. So I can remember every morning listening to Mike Reed and thinking, right, Joe Boxes, do we take a chance on them? You know, that's got to be a hit. That's going to. I felt like the Joe Boxers did have a hit. Well, I'm talking about that, yeah. the boxer doing the boxer beat. I don't think Roman Holiday had, had a hit at all. Jimmy the Hoover. Jimmy the <laughs> Hoover, I put. I mean, God, no. Matt Fretton, did he have a hit? I don't think he did. Don't think so. I put him on the, on the outsides of the top 30, but nothing. Yeah, yeah. You were desperate to find new people, you know. I, I guess you got it right a lot more times than you got it wrong, though. Yeah, well, you, I was constantly trying to kind of break the, try and get new people ready because I felt you shouldn't be stuck with Spandau Ballet forever or Duran Duran forever. It's only so many times you can put them on the cover. But actually, it was probably the sensible thing to do was just to carry on kind of milking the ones that were really <laughs> selling. <laughs> So let's launch ourselves into this edition of Smash It. It's like I say, from the 11th of June to the, well, the 11th to the 24th of June, 1981, 35p, Adam on the front. Mark, do you want to take us through what's on this cover? Oh, right. Well, yes, there are no cover lines, interestingly, because um, cover lines obviously haven't started. The cover lines are simply squeeze, white snake, hit lyrics, including will you, uh, all stood still in Ghost Town, Human League, Lynx, Hazel O'Connor in colour, and Adam and the Ants. No lines. There's none of that, the tax, the tours, the trousers, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, outrageous quotes, you know. It's just, uh, that was all that was considered to be necessary at the time, I guess. And Adam Ants on the cover, who was a huge deal at the time. I got, we'll come on to the interview in a moment. But, I mean, Adam Ant, you know, uh, interestingly, had a complete monopoly over all his photographs. Unbelievably clever bloke, really. Um, he only had a certain number of studio-quality pictures taken of himself in the full regalia with the white stripe and all that. And therefore, you couldn't really put him on the cover of a magazine if you, didn't, if you couldn't put him in the studio and take those pictures yourself because they owned all the pictures. And he, as he didn't do any interviews because he was so paranoid about the press being incredibly aggressive towards him, which they were, then, um, you know, then you couldn't really, uh, you know, you, unless you had an interview, which we did, in fact, we went out and got one, um, without permission from the record company or him, uh, <laughs> we, you couldn't really put him on the cover. But, uh, yeah, they, were, they, earned, they owned the pictures to the extent that we produced a giant poster of Adamant um, uh, in Smash Hits that was a painting. We had to get someone to paint a picture of him because there just weren't enough decent pictures to to to, to utilise. Amazing, really. Yeah, because it is the only time that he appeared on on the front of Smash It. So 
that explains it. it was, I was going to ask that question. <laughs> well, because you could, the only other pictures you had were ones that were kind of taken live order, which weren't really good enough, you know. So you had complete control over it, really. So I'll, I'll just run through the, uh, the, the contents page here. And of course, the big thing that we're all buying Smash Hits for is those lyrics. Um, and in this one, we get Ghost Town by the Specials, Would I Lie to You by Whitesnake, Hot Chocolate, You'll Never Be So Wrong, All Stood Still by Ultravox, Spellbound by Susie and the Banshees, Throw Away the Key by Lynx, Body Talk, Imagination, Nobody Wins, Elton John, no one remembers that one, All Those Years Ago by George Harrison. Going Back to My Roots by Odyssey, 11 O'Clock TikTok, U2, One Day in Your Life, Michael Jackson, More Than In Love by Kate Robbins, the song from Crossroads, um, Will You by Hazel O'Connor, uh, Let's Jump the Broomstick by Coast to Coast, and then as Mark's already mentioned, Adam and the Answer feature, feature on White Snake, uh, Squeeze and those colour posters of Lynx and the Human League, because of course, you know, we remember Smash It has been a very colourful magazine, but there were only ever, you know, at this point, I guess the front, the back and the centre spread that were full colour pictures and then the insides would be black and white photos with, with colour blocks. That's right. Oh, yeah. At vast expense, eventually went full colour. I can remember what, a, what an amazing luxury that was. No, you could only, you'd only plan colour and spot colour every kind of eighth page, whatever it was, of, you know, and uh, there were little sections of it. So, yeah, quite a luxury. Was, was that under your editorship when it went full colour? Yeah, it did. It did, yeah, because, I mean, they just thought, let's invest in it. It's going through the roof. You know, the sales were just so massive. They thought, well, why not? Throw some money at it and see what happens. And, uh, no, it sold <laughs> even more. It's terrific. Um, so that first lyric that we get to is um, Ghost Town by the Specials. Which is a brilliant ad later on for that, which has a skeleton on it. And yeah. you think, isn't it extraordinary, the things that, you know, it's like... Um, can't stand losing you. Or was it by the police? Uh, the, the cover was somebody, somebody with a noose around their neck, standing on a on a block of ice with a with a one bar electric fire melting it. And you thought this is absolutely extraordinary. This is stuff aimed at kind of twelve year olds. You know, wouldn't happen today. I don't think. Um, but I think it's you know for me it's one of those songs that the, the further away we get from Ghost Town, the more extraordinary it is, and the more extraordinary it sounds. Whereas at the time it was. Another pop song that came on, a great pop song. But do you remember hearing it for the first time? What what your reaction was? Yeah, I did. I remember hearing it. Actually, seeing them, seeing them play it. It must have been in uh, I think it's late nineteen eighty something like that. And they played it at the Finsbury Park, I think, at the Rainbow. And uh, I remember being knocked out. I mean, this is you know just huge kind of political impact at the time. And it's amazing how enduring that song is. I mean, it still gets played in documentaries and things as being something that pinpoints a, a moment in time and uh, uh, the arrival of Margaret Thatcher, etc., etc. Uh, no, it's a brilliant record. It's, it's still got that magic and potency, hasn't it? And it's kind of unnerving and yeah. sinister. And I remember reading a, an interview with Jerry Dammers a few years ago and he talked about the song Teddy Bear's Picnic being an inspiration. You know, that kind of strange, slightly queasy... Yeah, queasy, sinister, unsettling. Yeah, and the unsettling feeling, which which I think is what gives it its its potency, you know, all, all these years later. There's a brilliant clip by, there's a guy called Rodri Marsden. Have you ever heard of him? Oh, yeah, yeah. Rodri Marsden does these wonderful things on Twitter where he kind of uh, deconstructs uh, songs and explains how they're played. And he plays the chord sequence from from uh, from Ghost Town and explains uh, well, really why it's so, it's so eerie and unsettling and extraordinary. It's fantastic. It's like a really strange sort of fairground ride noise, isn't it? Or something yeah, like, it is. It's, it's, it's odd. I think what's really interesting about this as well and where it is in the magazine is you've gone from Adamant on the cover to this and, and there's really that kind of 
push and pull throughout a lot of this magazine of sort of entertainment and glamour and, and image and gimmick and, you know, pop frippery, cheek by jowl with like realism and, and more seriousness. And, you know, it's that kind of, it's that tension in pop at the time, which I think made things really interesting. Yeah, well, that's what made it so exciting yeah, at the time. Absolutely. Like all those acts that you think of as being uh, ludicrous and, and, um, and old-fashioned and not fitting. You think of Smash, it's all all being about, you know, soft sell and Human League and, you know, Duran Duran and all the kind of ones specifically aimed at kind of teenagers. But actually, what made Top of the Pops so good was that was that you had to sit through Bonnie Tyler or you had to sit through Ney and Renato or you had to sit through some ghastly, you know, school choir or whatever it was or some <laughs> heavy metal act you didn't like. And that's what made you appreciate the ones you did like more. And smash, and the way the magazine was put together, that contrast, you know, really, uh, you know, I think really helped with all that. Okay, should we move on to uh, to the main interview with Adam and the Ants? So, some chap called Mark Ellen has tracked down the band in France, just to set the scene a little. Um, it says, with their fifth top ten single, Stand and Deliver, still basking at number one back on home turf. The ants are moving through uncharted territory. With them move the kind of trappings that indicate a freshly won platinum status. A massive road crew, an articulated truckload of gear, wardrobe units, merchandise and makeup team and a minder fresh from service with Led Zeppelin. There's even a trio of silky black limos hired to glide them to this evening's venue, the Krypton Ultra Disco, and then whisk them back to that hotel at a carefully regulated on-stage temperature. <laughs> so there we go. There's Mark there setting the scene, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about uh, how Mark ended up there and, and a bit about the interview. But before we do that, there's someone else that we want to introduce into this. This is a bit like I feel a bit like Eamon Andrews on yeah. This Is Your Life. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And we'll see if Mark remembers this voice. Oh, all right, go on. I mean, I remember more about Smash Hits generally. I remember being in France, but I was, I've just read that interview and I don't remember saying any of it. Obviously, it was so long ago. <laughs> But I don't know what I can specifically tell you about the interview, except that I didn't want to go out in the sun. And I know that Mark spoke spoke to everybody else except me, and then he had to wake me up. Yeah. Do you remember, well, do you remember anything about Mark turning up at all? Or I was just told you've got to talk to this bloke from Smash Hits, and I thought, well, okay, that sounds like fun. I don't think I'd met him before. The, what, what, what was uh, his partner's name? Dave Hepworth. Dave Hepworth. Yeah, yeah I thought I'd met him. Right. I remember Adam being a big, big, big Smash Hits fan. He always was always saying, "This is great. This is great. This is this is where we should be." And this, you know, this is the future and all that. Do you think that the relationship the band had with Smash Hits was different to like the Enemy and Melody Maker and so on? And and if so, how was it different? Do you think? Well, they liked us for a start. Yeah. <laughs> Simple as that. Yeah, they liked us. I don't. I don't really understand why. The enemy didn't like us so much. Well, I mean, I, I do understand it's because we were successful. They hate success of any kind. It's all, it's, it was all very socialist. And I suppose they, they suspected we had money. And, and also, you know, we weren't playing the punk game anymore. We'd, done, we'd been through that. And they were, seeing, they were still in that, you know, like, you know, come the revolution. And it's like, we, we've gone through that. We've done that. Yeah. We want to do something else now. For us, it was completely over. It was completely dead. Mm. And we wanted to desperately to do something else, which is what we desperately did. <laughs> and it's like they were always... They always seemed to be, always seemed to be too late. You know, they were too late with punk. They were too late with, you know, 
New Romantic, they were too late with the, the new pop thing. They always missed out on it. Well, this is where Smashwicks came in, really, yeah. isn't it? Because yeah. they, they were right there for, for all of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they knew what was popular. They knew where their bed, bed was buttered. This is what people want to read. This is what people want to buy. You know, they, they, they outsold all the weeklies, didn't they? They were in colour. They had all the most popular bands. And that's what, you know, these bands are popular because you, just, you say they are. They actually really are. People, you know, people go out and spend their hard-earned money on their records. We sort of fed off them. They fed off us. You know, the more the more we did, the more we print. You know, the more the more outrageous we looked, the more you know, the more pictures they would print, and so it just went round and round and round. And it kind of worked with video as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Because videos would come in. Yeah. More popular then as well. Yeah. <laughs> it was good timing, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. It was. I mean, it, I think for anyone's success, anybody who's successful, it's like the planets have to align. Every single thing has to be right, and you've got yeah. to be really lucky. You've got to be the right thing at the right time, at the, you know, in the in, and in the right place. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And we just were. Fantastic. That was oh, good, that's really it? great. When did you record that, Marco Peroni? When did you record that? About two weeks ago. That's fantastic. He was so good. We wanted a little surprise for you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of... It's funny. Interesting he doesn't remember much about it because he wasn't there, actually. He was mostly in bed. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't come out and be photographed. He wouldn't do any of that stuff. Really funny. Yeah, he said he didn't like the sun. So That's uh, right, he didn't, no, he yeah. didn't, he didn't. But no, it's a funny old thing, though, because we just thought, look, Adam and the Ants were so huge, we absolutely have to have a book cover. And we can't not have an interview. This is insane. They won all the polls, the, all the letters were about them. Um, they were just the biggest deal. You forget how huge they were. They were massive. So I just decided, okay, what we'll do is, you know, I'll just go, I'll go fly out there. I'll find out where they are. They're on tour in France. I worked out on that Tuesday, they were in Aix-en-Provence and I booked a flight to Aix-en-Provence. Turned up, they had no idea that I was coming, brought a camera with me, thought I'd do a photo session. And I arrived at the venue and they just said, oh yeah, well, they're they're here, but they've just done such a, they're just over the road in the cafe. And I went over there. I can remember them being absolutely staggered. And at first they were a little bit nervous because they didn't do any press because they, you know, they, 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 they didn't do it for very good reasons. They never got any favourable press. Literally, I think the only magazine that seemed to like them was us. The, the music press thought they were terrible. And you forget that, um, you know, that, that, that they had been the kind of punk rock darlings beforehand, you know. It's very interesting. Mm. I went to with my neighbour, Palamine, who, who was a big ant person back in the day. We went to, you thought it would be amusing, to go to their reunion show at the Apollo, Hammersmith Apollo in 2014. And it was really interesting because half the audience were those kind of gnarled old punks, you know, mostly blokes in their late 50s, green hair, a few chains, leather jackets, do you know what I mean, tattoos. And they'd come to hear him play the whole of Dirk Wears White Socks, which he did. And the other half of the audience, mostly female, uh, were in their kind of late 40s, you know, and there was a few kind of um, with ribbons in their hair and the old white stripe and a few pirate boots, you know. And halfway through the show, he'd finished all the punk stuff and there was a kind of screen on the stage and we were up in the circle at the side so we could see what was going on. See, so when behind the screen, he tore off all those, you know, punk leathers and stuff and we could see him hopping about one foot trying to pull on his new pair of trousers, his military <laughs> jacket, whatever, and then appeared out of this thing, you know, going, I am the dandy highwayman, you know. And uh, at which point, about 50% of the audience literally got up, you hear the seats clacking and kind of marched out. And thought, fuck this, we only came for the punk stuff. And the rest, of course, went bonkers because this is what they'd come for. And those two audiences were completely divided. I don't think there was anybody really who liked the early Adam and the Ants and then liked 
the, 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 the late period because actually the early stuff appealed to kind of students in their in their kind of you know teens and, and late twenties, and the rest was deliberately aimed at twelve, thirteen, fourteen year old mostly girls. So what he'd done was. It was a very, very deliberate thing. It was a bit like Mark Bolan and Tyrannosaurus Rex turning into T-Rex. He thought, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to chase some success. I'm going to stop expressing myself. You know, I'm going to stop, stop writing songs that, 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 that I want to write and plumb the depth of my soul. I'm going to deliberately write songs that appeal to this demographic and I'm going to wear a certain, I'm going to have a certain look and a certain choreography and a certain type of video. And it was a really, really deliberate commercial ploy. And he had so many, you know, he, he had a lot of a lot of grievances. Malcolm McLaren had nicked his group. He was very bitter about that. Um, the punk rock fraternity had turned against him, and he was very bitter about that. Uh, the press absolutely detested him. So he had a lot of points to prove and uh, really wanted to win. So it was really interesting because when he saw me at first, he was really cautious. And he thought, actually, this guy, she's smash it to love us. This guy who I've never met, who's, who's come all the way out here on Spain, <laughs> This is kind of, he's hardly going to stitch us up, is he? You know, and he was incredibly forthcoming. He was really, really funny, and and uh, and they, I thought they were really, really, they were fantastically entertaining. And I did a little session, as you said, Marco didn't turn up, but I, I photographed them. So to get pictures of the ants at all, as an amateur photographer, was going to be quite a big deal. So uh, yeah, it went really well. It was a, it, it was a big success, and my God, it sold. It sold just vast numbers, huge. That was the first issue I bought because I I just got into Adam and the Ants um, around you know like dog eat dog kings of our frontier time, but I'd never bought any music papers at all up until that point. But then when I saw that on the newsagent shelves, that was me dipping my toe into Brilliant. the world of, uh, of music press. It took me another few months before I started buying it regularly, but I I must have read this issue back to front oh, cover fantastic. to cover a hundred times. You know, oh that's great. <laughs> it's still kind of imprinted. On me now, you know, when I look at it, yeah. it's all so familiar. It's really strange. Oh, that's so funny. The French couldn't, didn't quite know what to make of it because they weren't very big in France at the time. Him going on stage, Marco Merrick, Terry Lee, Gary Tibson, yours truly. You know? <laughs> it's so funny also to see them getting dressed up. I mean, Gary Tibson wasn't too bad because he'd been a member of Roxy Music. So the idea of pulling on the old buccaneer boots or the and the pirate stuff or whatever it was, or, or the Prince Charming stuff was fine. But but Marco, is, Marco reminded me of those pictures you used to see of spiders from Mars. Do you remember seeing Woody Woodsmansy and those guys being kind of told to put on their spandex trousers and their big boots? <laughs> the kind of, uh, do I have to wear this boss features that we used to run in, in Q magazine, you know? And Marco <laughs> is very much like that. But no, they were great. They were fantastic. When we spoke to him, he, he said uh, that was one of his least favourite aspects, wasn't it? Doing the videos and the dressing yeah. up. Yeah. But it was part of the job, so he did it. But yeah, Also, I love the fact that all those people have been through punk rock and disguised the kind of music that they grew up with and stuff that they liked. Because Adam really loved Rory Gallagher and he loved Argent. His favourite group was The Doors. You know, it was like Johnny Rotten. Johnny Rotten's favourite group was Van de Graaff Generator. But there'd been this kind of Stalinist revision of history where he couldn't talk about those. He had to say, <laughs> the only people who had to talk about the cool were kind of David Bowie and Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. That was basically where punk rock kind of started, you know. So, you know, but where you then discovered that Wham! had been to see Genesis and as had the members of Spandau Ballet. and Because that's what everybody did, because that's what was around, you know. And, uh, no, he was brilliant, Adam. Really good value. I think, I think what was interesting, he talks about it in this article about them creating an audience, because it was such a strange concept, wasn't it? The, uh, 
you know, the kind of noble sort of uh, Native American Indian with like oh, yeah. two drummers and the, the glam rock thing. And then the Prince Charming and the Dandy High Woman. It wasn't like anyone had done it before and they were just going, well, we'll copy that. It was, it was completely from another planet, but it was still massively successful. Totally from another planet. You couldn't do it now. Couldn't do it now because you'd be accused of cultural appropriation. No. <laughs> There'd be an outcry. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you'd, be, uh, you'd be lynched. There'd be demonstrations outside the venues. But yeah, and it was really original. It was a really good time. It was a great time for Smash Hits. It was fantastic. And they were one of the first groups who really got onto that. Their live performances didn't matter. This wasn't wasn't what it was about at all. It was entirely about the videos. And you know, and that was that was the big revolution that was happening. You know, up till I don't know, nineteen seventy nine or whatever, you know, groups, the jam, the stranglers, Elvis Costello and the attractions, the police, they all got there by going out and playing every single tiny little venue they could. And after about you know, it's seven nine eighty. It was just entirely videos. You know, you could play by one performance on. You know, by making one video, you could reach more people than you could ever reach in your entire life on the live circuit. So you know, it was all the, um, you know, it was it was Eurythmics and and uh, the duos, the, the groups without rhythm sections. It was brilliant. But I, I guess Adam Ant especially was was the first big pop star of the 80s, and you mentioned that when this issue came out, that it sold by the bucket load. So do you think, you know, that, that it was just that nice coincidence that Smash It's was just starting to really bloom at this time and Adam Ant came along and all these things just kind of lined up nicely? Yeah, I think it was just our time, wasn't it? You know, um, if you think about it, none of the other press really could represent any of these groups very well, partly because of the paper quality. I know that's rather a, rather a dull reason, but it's true. The, 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 the Inkies simply couldn't do colour reproduction at all well. It's only really us in the face and the odd other magazine like Blitz that could do it. So, uh, And Smash Hits was just a perfect package for that whole generation of people who are watching Top of the Pops and listening to Radio 1 and they weren't old enough to go out. That's the interesting thing, I think. Smash Hits readers read Smash Hits until they were old enough to go to, to concerts. The moment they went to concerts, they stopped going. That was my theory. And I'm absolutely sure I'm right. Because up until then, it's about escape and it's about being stuck in the bedroom and it's about fantasising about what the adult world would be like. And you've got your lyrics and you've got your interviews and you've got your posters and you've got you know the, the the radio and the TV, and if you if you link that little electrical circuit together, the fairy lights come on, and you've got the whole pop experience. But you could always tell when people were about to leave the Smash Hits. You know, they'd write to the letters page and they'd say, um, "Say, yeah, I went to this amazing concert uh, uh, last night. You know, Lester de Montfort Hall, and it was uh, it was the Duranis. You know, and then they'd talk about the support group coming on first, some support group you've never heard of." And how fantastic they were. And they would say, it was really exciting. And we all got drinks. And then the lights kind of went down. And this group came on. And they waved at us. And they played these songs. And they were wearing this. And they were wearing that. And the lights were orange. And then they were green. And then the lights went up again. And we all clapped. And they went off. And then the Durannies came on. And they did this. And Simon said that. You know, Incredible detail. Absolutely amazing. And they were just so, so kind of hyped up about the whole thing. They had to tell someone, a Smash Hits was the person to tell. And you could tell that once they'd gone to a concert, the world of Smash Hits didn't matter anymore. They were actually out in the real world. And they just didn't really need us. You know, that's the point when they probably started reading, I don't know, the music press or just stick them in the face or whatever. Interesting, really. 
So we move through the rest of the interview. We see uh, Mark's picture of Marco in bed, sitting up there. And then we've got... Uh, He's very bad-tempered about that, so I've got to take a picture of him. <laughs> we've got Ekin, uh, an advert for Heaven Appear by Ekin the Bunnyman, more of which later. And then we come to some of the lyrics. So uh, we've got White Snake, Hot Chocolate, Susan the Banshees and Ultravox on this page. And I just wanted to, very quickly, it'd be remiss of us, I think, to go past this page without just mentioning the uh, the poetic majesty of... <laughs> White snakes, would I lie to you? Which features, uh, if you just allow me to um, read a little poetry here. Uh, Sai mentioned earlier about satin sheet action, and, and and it comes from this song. There's a couple of couple of verses here. It says, "Hey girl, if you need some love and affection, I'll whisper all the sweet sweet nothings I know you little girls like to hear. Now listen, if you would change your mind, we could find a night of satin sheet action." <laughs> I promise I won't do anything, babe, unless you wanted me to. And that's a fact. And that's a fact. That's a fact. That's a great lyric, isn't it? Again, another thing that wouldn't be allowed today. Hashtag different times. Absolutely not. Oh, my God. I know all those... All those cliches in heavy rock songs, all kind of people talk about, take, give me every inch of my love. And kind of taking their loving on the run, all that kind of nonsense. You know. Oh, Christ. So you've actually professed a, a bit of a, a liking for this song, haven't you? Well, yeah, I mean, I did actually buy a White Snake record around this time. I was only seven years old, but my sister was well into rock music, and so it just kind of filtered down. You know, whatever she was listening to, I'd you know, invariably end up listening to it and going out and playing. So I'd bought a White Snake record, uh, but I didn't know this one, and I, I quite like it. I mean, it's, it's got. I mean, David Coverdale was was a soul boy anyway, and I think if you listen to this song, yeah, it's, it's a crunchy riff. But if you imagine that being done as like a Stax record kind of thing, um, you, you could hear you know Booker T and the MGs and, and the Memphis Horns kind of. You know, bla- blasting that one out. It'd need a bit of a lyrical tweak, I think. <laughs> Might do. You know, if, if Otis Redding or Sam and Dave were, were going to uh, going to attempt it, and particularly yeah. the uh, the album version, which has got a, a line that's not included in the lyrics here in, in Smash It. So it's something about uh, would I lie to you just to get into your pants or something like that's that. That's right. Like, what? Delightful. <laughs> and then he does this kind of funny little laugh, and it's like, oh dear. That's not good. It's not aged well, has it? I mean, I know any lyrics can sound bad out of context, but they... Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's, there's no much, excuse for that. There's, there's not much context either, though, no, is there? <laughs> God, look, Ultravox. Well, I can remember seeing Ultravox when they were Tiger Lily. I remember seeing them in 1975 playing the Oxpens Market Festival in Oxford. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, all going nowhere and then got uh, got midget and it all took off. They were huge at the time. Yeah. Vienna was big hit and, uh, was it 1980, wasn't it? So they were really, really big. So what have we got? Bits pages. Yeah, wow. We get to bits and what I always call the uh, the, the, the beating heart of, of the carousel. I think it, it, it's such an important part of the magazine, this, for me. It was you know, when, when I was buying it every fortnight, as a, as a kid yeah it was the section that i'd turn to first i mean usually it was first in the magazine by the by the mid 80s anyway but um do, do you agree that it provide a very important function for smash hits well i think the interesting thing about smash hits was it, it was so much broader than people think they people didn't read it just thought it was all just i don't know spanned up spanned up ballet and, and around whatever. but you know look at this you know you've got a thing about elvis presley uh it was a thing about um the Talking Heads and um, the uh, Tom Tom Club, who actually went on to have huge hits. Actually, the thing about Ian Dury and the Blockheads, this you know band splitting up magazine. You know, this is slightly the Scars. 
I mean, this is slightly off the beaten track. There's a thing about rapping. In fact, the piece starts with rapping's back. You know, now the idea that in 1981, you're writing said rapping's back. Most people would not know what rapping was, but actually smash hits have been really, really very quick on all this stuff. I can remember we had a cover story with Malcolm McLaren on the cover. It must have been about, I don't know, maybe 83, 84, something like that, when he had the Duck Rock album out and explained the whole concept of scratching and Grandmaster Flash and, you know, and a really brilliant piece by a guy called Dave Rimmer. Been out to New York, interviewed all these people, explained exactly what this whole revolution was all about. And that was before a lot of the music press were actually doing it. You know, I think, I think you know, Smash It was very, very early on the case for all this stuff. You know, um, what else we got here? We got um, got Kid Creole. Well, Kid Creole, right about Kid. In fact, they went on to have some 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 hits. But I mean, that's Ian Birch, kind of you know the, the old the, you know the inner melody maker writer coming out there, who's just really interested in Z Records and everything they did. But you know, by doing that, and even you know Glenn Tilbrook talking about his favourite records: Jimi Hendrix, Robert Wyatt, The Monkeys, The Beatles, Elvis Costello, The Undertones. You know, I mean, that's a Kazanat's Cats. You know, I mean, that's, that's this is educational stuff, you know. I mean, a lot of people, the first time they ever heard about Robert Wyatt or Jimi Hendrix or whatever was from reading this magazine. And that Cousinette's Cats song, I love that. I've fallen in love with it. I'd never heard it before. Quick Joey Small, Run Joey Run. Yeah. And he calls it the first ever punk record. And it's kind of like a, I think it's great, like a psychedelic bubblegum punk record from the late 60s. But if you've never heard it, listeners, I recommend you uh, go and give it a spin. Yeah. And, and the kind of rapping, just, just going back to that, I mean, it's not really... Um, I think you know, the, the point that this is making, this piece, because it mentions, who is it, Barnsley Bill. But I, I had a listen to his, his record, Barnsley Rap, and... It, oh, right. Yeah, his, his rhymes don't scan too well. He's, 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 not, <laughs> he's, he's, not quite, he's not quite got what, what all these rap things about. And then there's the Wicker Rap, which is uh, supposedly like an Alan Wicker type voice. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's mentioned three, it appears, I think, in the dance chart and again in the, the independent chart a little bit later on in the magazine. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a uh, you know, a very poor joke that wears thin very, very quickly. Quite a big hit, that record. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, kind of like in the vein of sort of Rapper's Delight and lots of other, little bits of other songs coming, coming in and out. But, uh yeah, I think it goes on to, to make the point that, you know, uh, Tom Tom Club, wordy rapping hood, and squarely at the more intelligent end of the market. <laughs> I think it's very interesting that, that all the Smash Hits readers uh, around the time of this kind of issue are all now the kind of people in there, whatever they are, late 40s, 50s, whatever, people like Pete Buffides who are writing books about their affection for pop music. And he wrote a thing about, I just think this picture of Martha and the Muffins here. And he, he wrote a wonderful thing in his book, Broken Greek, about how when he heard Echo Beach by Martha and the Muffins, he realised that this meant that adulthood was going to be disappointing. There's a line when she says, uh, from nine to five, I have to spend my time at work. My job is very boring. I'm an office clerk, to give it its American pronunciation. And all she wants to do is be on Echo Beach. And he said that's his picture of, of adulthood. It was going to be this boring world where you had to sit in an office. And it's very sweet. He's, you think about people when he was, I don't know, six or seven or whatever, he was listening to Sting's Roxanne. And he thought it was so noble that Sting was saving these prostitutes from this terrible, <laughs> terrible Single-handedly. life. Single-handedly. <laughs> what a hero he was. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> he wrote this lovely thing about 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 the Wombles, and when he says, uh, you know, it was all about a class thing about overground, underground, wombling free. The Wombles of Wimbledon, common are we. 
They couldn't get over this idea that there was somehow they were kind of Wombles were working class and all the posh people might disapprove of them. It's fantastic. The Wombling proletariat. That's it, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's really interesting. You know, look, Thin Lizzy's in there. B-52s. B-52s is interesting. The readers never liked the B-52s. And I don't really know why not. I suppose because they're American. A lot of a lot of it, you couldn't relate to American groups if you were 12, 13, 14, or whatever. You just couldn't, you couldn't, you, quite, you couldn't quite get the cultural references. If there'd been a British group who kind of wore a load of tat they bought in junk shops and boot sales and, uh, and looked like that and wore, you know, bouffant wigs, they might like them. I don't know, but they just didn't understand. They couldn't relate to the B-52s at all. It was kind of an adult joke. It's a shame because they look great. I think America was like another planet then, wasn't it? Completely. They just didn't, they couldn't contextualise it. They couldn't, couldn't figure out what it was all about. They weren't kind of old enough, you know. But yeah, bits, what a mixture of stuff. Very educational. Smash Hits was educational, you know. We used to interview Paul Weller about his favourite books and he'd talk about George Orwell and stuff like that. And, and people have said to me in the past that they've they read George Orwell because, you know, because Paul Weller was going on about it. And so uh, I think we did good work, actually, beyond just uh, your lyrics and your, and your, you know, harmless fizzy pop. <laughs> Yeah, and the, the bits ends, uh, the bits, no, it's just bits, bits, ends with Marco Peroni's personal file. And uh, oh, yeah. uh, Gavin asked Marco when, when we met up with him a few weeks ago, um, so some of the questions, and uh, let's have a listen to what his, his answers were to see if they, they matched up what was in the Mac. The other thing I wanted to go through um, in the magazine is that in the bits section, uh, there's a thing called personal file, which is like a little questionnaire. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. Mark probably did it with you in the hotel, yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. And I'm just what I wanted to see is how uh, four decades on, <laughs> well, how much I you still, remember <laughs> your answers. So if I must, still have those. Yeah, have you still got the same answers? So no, I'm um, sure they're exactly the same. Let's see if you. Uh, how well does Marco from 2021 remember Marco from 1981? So question number one. Uh, it, the question was, what was your high spot of education? What do you think you might have said? I can't remember. My high spot of education was, was being thrown, a, thrown out of art school. Very good. Yeah, I, I'll give you that. It that, says, was my uh, favorite, that was my favourite. Being singled out of college for having green bits in my hair. <laughs> <laughs> I actually found out that the teachers had been told to ignore what I wore and not comment on it. I was so proud. Yeah, that's no, <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, I actually met somebody who went to college with me and they said, well, well they were in the year below, and they said, we didn't know what you were. It was <laughs> so what, what, were you, what were you dressing as? What were you wearing at the I was time? Just wearing, I was wearing clothes from sex, like 50s clothes and, you know, proto-punk, proto but kind of brighter, proto-glam punk. Oh, this has been, what, been about 76? Yeah, 76. Yeah. 75, 76. Because punk hadn't, hadn't broken yet. No one knew what it was. No one had ever heard of it. I just thought, well, we didn't know. We just thought you were you. We didn't know. <laughs> we didn't know what you were doing or why you were doing it. <laughs> what is he wearing today? And what, it's, what has he got on? Yeah, what has yeah. he got on? Yeah. And this was at art college. I mean, you know, that's yeah, really well, quite a liberal kind of... Uh, I mean, it wasn't. It yeah. may be now and it may have been in the 60s, but it wasn't then. It was really, really, really... Yeah, what, everyone else was wearing cheesecloth and loom pants. Yes, and, cheesecloth yeah. and loom pants, yeah. yeah. And riding, riding mopeds for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> OK, the next question uh, Mark asked you was your first crush. Did I say Lindsay Depaul? You did say Lindsay Depaul. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Question three. What was your proudest achievement? I'll be impressed if you remember this one. Because I think you may have made this up, but I don't know. I don't know. 
He was eating six cream crackers in one minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just, just, what, I mean, there's a good achievement. What? what in what? What can you be your proudest <laughs> achievement at twenty-one? You know, it's, yeah. I got some brothel creepers. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, or, you know, we were number one. I mean, I couldn't think of anything. It's like, yeah. they're just, they're, I, mean, they're, I mean, they're obviously kind of like teenage silly questions and I gave teenage silly answers. Uh, what would you think your Desert Island disc was at the time? P- Pyjama Rama. Correct. It, was, it always has been and always will be, I think. Uh, worst venue ever played? Was, that could have been two. It was either Middlesbrough Rock Garden... Or this Retford Porterhouse. It was one of those two. If you had to plump on one of them, I think it was Retford Porterhouse because that was particularly. Uh, you went the wrong bad. way. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Middlesbrough Rock Garden. What happened at Middlesbrough Rock Garden? There was a particular. That incident. was a massive fight, as there always used to be in those days. Yeah. And they wanted to. It was the strange sort of like you know how punks thought that they would show that they loved you, which is by throwing, throwing things at you. And, um, and spitting on you, and, and spitting on you, and then trying to beat you up afterwards. This is how we love you. <laughs> well, yeah, I actually met a guy in some at some gig about ten years ago. He said, "Oh, do you remember doing playing uh, Middlesbrough Rock Garden?" I said, "Yes." And he said, well, "I'm one of the blokes who threw coins at you. You come up and tell me that. <laughs> what am I supposed to say?" <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're wanker now and you're wanker then. It's like, uh, I mean, last... why would you even admit that? <laughs> yeah, it's a strange thing. You'd yeah. think you'd be embarrassed, or at least have yeah. the decency to be embarrassed and go. Some people, I'm really some... sorry, mate. Yeah, um, some people. Moment. Yeah, yeah, some people have come up and go, "Do you remember being at a club at sunset?" And I go, "No." And I said, "What? I called you a wanker, and I'm really, really sorry." And I said, oh, "It's okay. Don't worry." Yeah. <laughs> But at least you said you're sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay, last question from this personal file. You, uh, it asked for your favourite hero or heroine, and you gave three answers. I'll give, I'll give you a clue. They're all heroes, actually. Who do you think the three guys you chose were? Brian Ferry, Link Ray, and uh, James Bond. Nah, can't. Yeah, you're in the right ballpark. You've got, you have got an ex-member of uh, Roxy. Andy McKay. Yeah, you've got Andy in there. Yeah, Uh, one of the spiders. Mick Ronson. Mick Ronson and then an actor. Sean Connery, I don't know. Uh, Lawrence Harvey. Oh, Lawrence Harvey, yeah. yeah. Was he out of uh, Room at the Top? Yes. That, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I think you put that. I thought he was dead choice. favourite film. I, I thought he was proto-Brian Ferry. <laughs> <laughs> I think Brian Ferry probably thought that as well. <laughs> We're on to another lyric page. We've got Link's Throw Away the Key in Imagination, Body Talk. And again, Sai always does a video playlist for each episode that we do. And Imagination, there's a, a great Top of the Pops performance, which some of the listeners may remember. But if not, again, I, I commend you to go and have a look because it's it's really quite a, quite the performance. Um, Lee Johns, the, the lead singer, is basically writhing around on a piano and then the bass player, I'm not going to say too much, I'm just going to read one of the comments that comes from someone called Sue Condon, and this is uh, on YouTube. She says, great bass riff, wonderful piano composition, completely destroyed by a ridiculous camped-up performance, but oh my, 
I can't take my eyes off the bass player's tights. No, tights. I should say no more. <laughs> tights, that's good. Well, they're very, t- well, very tight trousers yeah, yeah, and leggings. But you can, yeah. you can see a lot. Let's just yeah, yeah, let's yeah. leave that there. <laughs> Lee John subs Desk Nightmare because Lee John were three E's in Lee. Oh, the three yeah, E's Lee, it's like yeah. Lionel Richie. Yeah. There's no T in Lionel Richie. And Meatloaf, two words. B-52s has an apostrophe <laughs> for you. Dixies, no inverted comma. I can remember all these. Mark Brzezinski. You kind of, you got to, you know, just Shakespeare's sister. You know, you, you if yeah. you worked on a, on a music magazine, you could, you had to memorise all these uh, ones that were difficult to spell. Well, Mark became Mark Unpronounceable. Mark Unpronounceable Name, exactly. So that was a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly enough about, uh, we were just talking about Lee there. He recently popped up on my cultural radar again. There's, um, on iPlayer at the moment, uh, a series of, Films by uh, directed by Steve McQueen called Small Axe. Oh yeah, and there's one called Red, White, and Blue, which tells a true story of a guy called Leroy Logan, who was a, a police officer in the Metropolitan Police in the eighties. Yeah, and Lee is in that, not Lee Johns himself, but an actor playing Lee because he was one of Leroy's best friends. And Lee's mother was a police liaison officer, and her character's in it as well, and she helped influence Leroy's career. So it was just really strange watching that because I'd been watching. Body talk, and then later that evening, I put the telly on, and then there's the character of Lee Johns, and in real life he was he was best friends, and they're still friends now. And there was a picture of them on social media not long ago, out enjoying a meal, you know, together. I think it's pretty sweet that they were childhood friends that are still together. Oh now. wow, no no Lee Johns moments for years, then suddenly three come three come along at one. I know, right. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> And that's just the bass player's tights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three were, three were definitely coming at the same yeah. time there. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, moving on. And we get to, um, well, we've already encountered White Snake and the lyrics for one of their songs in there. But now we get a, a feature on them as well, which, I mean, on one hand, you do wonder what on earth this is doing in here. Uh, but on the other, it is worth remembering that rock or metal, as we may have called it, at that time, uh, it was pretty big. You know, it was in the charts, it was on top of the pops. And, and I think that's something that's been um, forgotten over the years, uh, probably because those bands don't form the accepted narrative of that era, you know, synth pop, new pop, new romantics and, and that sort of thing. But I think also it's because, um, well, it's something that Chris Charlesworth, who, who's the writer of this piece, he says, um, Whitesnake, perform music that owes little or nothing to trends. So I think that's possibly one reason why you know the rock music of this era kind of, it's kind of stands separate and gets gets forgotten a little bit. But um, it, it, I found it unusual seeing Chris Charlesworth's name in Smash. Yeah, the old uh, MM writer, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, lovely geezer. But I mean, he probably had access to uh, this group. They probably wouldn't have done this with Smash. He probably maybe he'd done this with something else and just uh, creamed off a few quotes. I've got no idea. I can't imagine. I don't know why. We would have run a two-page piece about Whitesnake, for God's sake. I mean, I think a lyric covers it, don't you? I mean, you don't want a poster, but I mean, my God, two pages. <laughs> a lot of it's about, oh, yeah, the, um, you know, it's virtually all those cliches about, um, you know, handling the bass chores and, uh, you know, the uh, nifty sticksman behind the kit. You know, uh, it's all about, you know, who the who the new bass player is and all that kind of stuff, which is if anybody really cares. So uh, it doesn't really have a smash its agenda at all. You know, it seems to have flown in from Melody Maker. Very odd. We stopped all that pretty soon. Yeah, lots of chat about about Deep Purple and uh, talking about 1971, which, you know, in, in talking about 1971 and 1981, it feels like really ancient yeah, history. It does. It's like, it has absolutely no relevance to 
to, to the pop kids uh, of that time. But I do like David Coverdale's little quote here talking about his love of music and where his inspiration comes from for his songs. And he says, my real love is the blues. And although the old bluesmen wrote about social conditions, they also wrote songs about women in uh, expressive ways. <laughs> my, li- my lyrics are basically diaries, but a lot of the lyrics about girls are tongue in cheek <laughs> and on satin. <laughs> I rather enjoyed the uh, sort of Derek Smalls type pronouncements of John Lord as well. He's the grand, the grand old age of 40 here, one of Rock's elder statesmen, as he's called. And I love that I can imagine, you know, like Derek Smalls with his pipe kind of uh, pontificating. And he says, if at the end of 1981 the band is no further forward than it was at the end of 1980, we shall have to take a long look at the situation. That's brilliant. That's great. And also, he's talking about uh, David's lyrics and uh, he says, uh, you know, kind of addressing, I guess, the, the charges of perhaps some uh, slightly dodgy lyrics. <laughs> and he says, younger writers and emerging bands are obviously more socially aware because that's a phase that a young man goes through between school and his mid-twenties, says Lord. I had a duffel coat and college scarf period when I wanted to change the world. I'm not putting it down one bit. The new wave certainly brought about more socially aware lyrics. But that doesn't mean David has to write like that. To say that all rock music must be socially aware is to say that all classical music should consist of Beethoven and his contemporaries. Music can be all things to all people. That's what's so great about it. That's quite good, actually, isn't it? I'm being unkind about the uh, my astonishment about how this piece was ever in, in there in the first place, because that's quite an interesting, uh, interesting point, really. Bless him. <laughs> but, you know, that seems so old. Somebody of 40, I'm just looking at the next page, and there's an Elton John uh, lyric, and there's a George Harrison lyric. So Elton John would have been about, I suppose, 34, 35, maybe. George Harrison would have been 38, wouldn't he? I mean, he was born in he was born in 43. So, yeah, he would have been 38 years old. And that seems so old. I mean, you know, just that just seemed just unimaginably it's pensionable, wasn't it? 38 at that time. My God. So what else have we got? We've got the disco page with Robin Katz, page 21. That's funny. The disco, I think that's before Boppin Bev Hillier wrote her wonderful funk column. Um, but I think they were really important, those little columns. Because, again, they were a little escapes to the adult world. You know, if you liked the funk world that Bev was writing about, about... Um, you know, Southern Freeze, those kind of records, Cool and the Gang, stuff that was going on, Caster Weekenders, Girls in White Stilettos, kind of, you know, just dancing to that kind of dance music. That would have been really, really exciting because you're stuck in your bedroom reading smash hits thinking, God, I'd love to be at an event like that. So I think they were really important, those little little, um, little windows to the outside world, actually. They just start a bit more colour again, don't they, like the, in, the indie page and the disco page? They do. They do, yeah. And I think having the, the disco top 40 in there, because a lot of the song titles are familiar, but it just reframes the charts in a slightly different way. Yeah. So it gives you, you, know, you can recognise some of the songs in there and it, it just gives you a little flavour that you know the, these songs are actually part of yeah. something else that's yeah. going on. And we've got a, a very early feature, I guess, on uh, level 42 here on the disco page by Robin Katz. Uh, and again, we get a mention of Adamant, actually. It says, uh, as three of the four are qualified drummers, I wonder if they intended bringing a double drum sound to their upcoming album. Which the Ants, you know, Ants got credit for being the first to do that, but I'm sorry, the Glitter Band were there first. <laughs> Can't really mention them, but it's yeah. a fact. It says, we did some double drumming on earlier stuff, but the media is only just becoming aware of that. 
The Burundi sound has been around for a long time. It's just that Adam wrapped it up with Gary Glitter and made the formula trendy. Oh. So I'm not sure we'll use it again. Brilliant. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. Fair enough. I see lurking there at number seven on the uh, Disco Top 40. Two weeks ago, it was number one. It's uh, Stars on 45. Oh, Christ. By uh, Star Sound. We ran a feature in Smash It's where we went out and um, we took out copies of Stars on 45 and got members of the public to, to, um, to destroy them. In colourful ways. One of whom was Boy George. Boy George, before, we, before he was Boy George. He was George O'Dowd, and he worked in a little clothes shop around the corner. Unmistakably him, and we ran a little picture of him saying, uh, this is George, you know, and he was sawing up a copy of a, of a, of a Stars on 45. <laughs> Brilliant. It's a great feature. On to the next page, we've got, first of all, uh, a little advert for Ario Speedwagon. For the... Not a little advert. It's full, well, it's full, yeah, yeah. full page. A full page advert. Full page for your Ario Speedwagon. In black and white, but still full page for their chart-topping album, High Infidelity. That's very clever. Featuring the Smash It single, of course, Keep On Loving You. And get a free T-shirt if you buy uh, a copy of the first 10 albums or cassettes purchased this week from the following dealers. And these got... dealers, that went on all the time. Of a chart return shops, see you. You could tell a chart return shop. There was one in Chiswick where I, where I still live actually, and uh, yeah, the, the, and there was a non-chart return shop. The non-chart return shop was kind of drab-looking place. Chart return shop, they just had massive free gifts in the window, didn't they? You could buy a <laughs> Bananarama seven-inch single. You get you get given the twelve-inch free or something. There was even a room where there was a, there was a, a, a record camera called Hole in My Shoe, the old traffic song by Neil from the Young Ones. Got to number two, so you know, I put him on the cover. The right thing to yeah. do. And um, I think in certain shops you could get a free pair of trainers with that, uh, which is pretty astonishing with a <laughs> copy of that, that record. So the amount of bribery and corruption that went on was phenomenal, really. Kipper Williams did a brilliant cartoon. I can remember we did a piece about chart return shops, and Kipper Williams did a great, great uh, cartoon for it with a picture of a, car- of, a, of a chart return shop. And he had, you know, all these records you could buy, and one of them had the Mona Lisa attached to it, which you got free with the records. Just brilliant. Bags of gold, you know, it's a simple cartoon idea. It's great. Well, if you went to Parrot Records of Colchester or Brady's of Preston, you'd get a T-shirt. As Sai pointed out to me earlier on, it doesn't say what was on the T-shirt, presumably REO Speedwagon, but I we guess don't know. So. I'll just need to share with you as well because it was the only the other week looking at this because I've seen this image as I was saying this 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 uh, issue of Smash Hits has kind of been printed on brain, and I always used to think that the woman was playing some kind of exotic African horn or something. I thought it was like a, a short horn that she was playing, and I've just realised that she's actually putting on lipstick and looking in a mirror. Oh, she's got a little folding mirror. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 That- that's taken me four decades to work that one out. I, saw yeah. I, I was rather astounded that at the bottom of the advert, it mentions um, that REO Speedwagon have also got other albums available. You can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish. Mm-hmm. And a decade of rock and roll, 1970 to 1980, double album. I didn't even know REO Speedwagon had been going that long. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> Who knew? So, but obviously that is 11 o'clock. To, is it a request spot for you two? It's pretty amazing. You two hadn't had a hit, I don't think. In no. Yeah. Had I, they? I, I don't think they had. I checked and it was out, yeah, two months before they had their first hit in the UK. New Year's Day, was that their first hit? or which was... No, it was F- Fire from the October album. Fire, right. Yeah, yeah. got in the, to number 35, I remember now. Yeah, yeah it yeah. just sort of scraped in there for a couple of weeks. But interestingly enough, it's requested by somebody in Dublin and obviously you two had hit the charts in 1979 with their first EP, so they would have been more known over there. But saying that, I found a, an archive of the Irish charts on the internet, and 11 o'clock TikTok didn't make the charts over there. 
<laughs> well, we had a bit of affection for them. I mean, I'd seen I'd seen you two about a year before, I think, in Bracknell Sports Centre, half filled. <laughs> they were completely unknown, and uh, they were obviously on the way up. But I think we just kind of quite liked them, really. And actually, they never really were that big a deal for Smash Hits anyway, because even when they were successful, they never quite worked as a pop group. They're a rock band. But uh, there they are. Okay, leafing through, we've got a double page spread of links and then a, a full page colour advert for New Sounds, New Styles. Oh, yeah, being produced out of Smash Hits office, which didn't last very long, but it was a, quite a good idea. It was a very, very narrow band. That, you know, basically, it started with. Um, Blue Rondo a la Turk, and it kind of mm. uh, pretty much ended with them too. Actually. <laughs> that was pretty much the only band that fitted New Sounds, New Styles. Chris <laughs> Sullivan and Blue Rondo, they had a hit called, uh, a non-hit actually called Clacto Vide Sustine. I can remember they used to come in the office all the time, hang around in their zoot suits. They were great, actually. They were really nice. But it wasn't really going anywhere. It fizzled out very quickly. And then we get to page 27 and the winner motorbike competition. Well, that's astonishing, isn't it? Because that looks like a... Like a like a 125cc motorcycle. I mean, how old did you have to be to ride a motorbike? Was it 17 or was it 16? I was thinking it was probably 17. 16 or 17. Maybe 16. I'm I mean, incredible. Sure. So, and, and I mean, so how many of the readers were actually eligible to even, I mean, I suppose you could send off one and win it at the age of 11 and then have it stuck in a garage for six years. I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, that's just one of those things where smash hits had was published by EMAP and EMAP was based in Peterborough where they had a lot of bike titles and they would have just, being able to get bikes for free for competitions and uh, shoved one our way. But it doesn't make any sense at all, does it? How did the competitions work in general? I mean, did you have to go looking for prizes or did companies approach you or did they approach EMAP and say... Well, in the end, they, they approached us. But in the early days, you have to ring people up and say, can we have a few, you know, signed Boomtown Rats records or whatever and then uh, beg, steal and borrow. But no, they eventually they really took off. And amazing, any competition at all got the most fantastic response. Just you think now that people had to, you know, you had to write it or send a postcard or whatever. You know, you had to get the postcard and write it and put a stamp on it and address it and go out and post it and then sit and wait to see in the unlikely event that out of thousands of other people, your name would appear in the magazine as the lucky winner of a, you know, a signed Toya 7-inch Um yeah, pretty amazing, really. Or, or in this case, a motorbike or a Barry Sheen flexi disc. Exactly. <laughs> Which I think is more tempting to me than the uh, the motorbike. I'd rather have the Barry Sheen flexi as well. Yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> Tommy Vance used to run a heavy metal programme and he used to, his motto, his, one of his slogans was, more metal than Barry Sheen's legs. That's <laughs> good. So we move on to the next page and we get to the singles reviews. Oh, um, yeah. this is Reviewed by Fred Della, uh, recently passed away. Oh, he did. Um, I mean, what can you tell us about Fred? Well, the interesting pop fact about Fred when he reviewed these singles is he was already 50 years old. As you say, he died very sadly the other day. And I think he was either 89 or 90. Amazing guy. I loved Fred. And actually, the reason Fred was in Smash Hits was entirely to do with Dave. And Dave, very sweetly, Dave used to work in the HMV record shop and wanted to break into, you know, music journalism. And Fred, who worked for the enemy, used to come in all the time and buy records. And eventually Dave said to him, look, Fred, well, you know, how do I do this? How do I, how do I, how do I get in? And I think Fred might have just dropped a, just said, write to the enemy and write to this person, send something off or whatever. 
But anyway, all I know is that Fred was the reason that Dave first got published, and Dave never forgot it. He absolutely adored him and was so grateful and very sweetly always used to, you know, when we started Q Magazine, I think Fred was in on Q Magazine too. And it was so funny because, you know, he was, yeah, he was 50 years old at the time, which was seemed old. It was twice as old as I was, you know. And he'd come in with his funny old... Uh, belted Macintosh, you know. And I discovered that he had uh, been the local um, uh, person in charge of his Frank Sinatra fan club when he was about 15 or 16. So, and he seemed quite old. But yet, when you read these reviews, here is he's reviewing the Angelic Upstarts, Bram Tchaikovsky, you know, Time and Dog. There we were talking about the, the width, the, the breadth, the diversity of Smash It's. Time and Dog, who was, I mean, I don't know, worked with the Moody Blues, wasn't he? He was a psychedelic guy, made records with Jimmy Page. And he's in Smash Hits, Toots and the Maytals. Um, you know, just uh, Joe Ely, for God's sake. Joe Ely, kind of country star. Um, it's just interesting that all those people finished up in Smash Hits being, being reviewed really sympathetically. He's very good, Fred, I think. I was just reading these a minute ago. And he's, um, he's got a review of Susie and the Banshee's Spellbound. He says, a winner, despite Susie's arch vocals, now all part of the rent-an-actress scene foisted on a gullible public, brain-numbed by TV commercials and memories of rock follies. Compensation, however, comes in the form of an enthralling 12-string gallop that encompasses high hurdles and water jumps, keeping the listeners on the edge of their shooting sticks till the post is reached. <laughs> Sort of spellbound, in fact. I mean, that's a brilliant review. Yeah. <laughs> that's and the readers love will have no idea, but not a lot of those kind of uh, reference points. I'll <laughs> think about the shooting sticks and the horse. But you know, it's just a, it's just a really, really good, really interesting um, selection of stuff. So we did used to. I mean, you reviewed all those things because, you know, it's partly because you thought some of them outsiders might be hit, so you should cover them, but partly because you're just interested in yourself and, and thinking, well, a time and dog record, I'll, I'll, I'll sit and write something about that. But again, really educational for the readers, I'm saying. I like some of his slaggings off. They're very good. The uh, the Grasshoppers, which was Mike Reed, the, the Radio 1 DJ, one of his bands. Oh, yeah. And he had a, a song called Teardrops Fall Like Rain, and it says, a lacklustre attempt to make a Buddy Holly-styled hit using a song fashioned by one-time crickets Jerry Allison and Glenn Hardin. But Buddy Holly died in 1959. This record died about 20 seconds after being placed on the turntable. <laughs> <laughs> Back of the neck from, from Fred. Very, very good, good. work. And also the album reviews are great too. You know, Eddie Grant and I, I review Doll by Doll. I mean, that's pretty esoteric stuff for smash hits, isn't it? I mean, that's great that they're all in there. Brilliant. Ghost Town gets reviewed by the specials, which he he quite likes and he says nice things about. And uh, there's some there's some other big records in here as well. Pretty in Pink by the Psychedelic Furs, which at the time didn't. I don't think it broke the top forty, but then on the back of the uh, the film a few years later, it um, yeah. became a hit. And obviously now it's their most well remembered song. And uh, Kirsty McCall makes it into there as well, where there's a guy who works down the chip shop, swears his Elvis. Genuinely great record. Though. Yeah. She was fantastic, Kirsty McCall. He says, isn't the title wonderful? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we put it on the cover. We put it on the cover once, around the time of that record, actually. So it would have been you know, a couple of issues later. I'm just interested to know, because we get the album reviews next, and in this one you're reviewing, uh, well, you give 9 out of 10 to Echo and the Bunnymen. 
doll by doll as well, a, a solid eight, eight out of ten there. But are there any albums that you've reviewed over the years that have, you know, you, you've done this for work, but they've become personal favourites? Oh, I think quite a few, actually. I'm just really embarrassed by this review. It's so pretentious, isn't it? The only line is that uh, sense is <laughs> forsaking the usual notions of tune and immediacy. The, the bunny men take atmosphere as their main text. I mean, that is just absolutely awful, isn't it? It's shameful. <laughs> what was I thinking? I don't know. No, I didn't review that many records, actually. But, I mean, you know, I love the Bonnie Men. I think they still think they're really good, actually. I've got fond memories of that, that whole period. Teardrop Explodes, I interviewed a few times. They were fantastic. I don't know. I mean, it's, the ones you... The difficulty about album reviews is that you often really regret them because you didn't have time to, to really... Um, you know, you're reviewing them because you, you're, you're either reviewing the last record and... Uh, in a way, and you're reviewing the idea of the band rather than the specific record you're listening to. Or you're trying to say something favourable because you think it might help you get a, <laughs> an interview in the, uh, <laughs> in the issue after. So I don't know. I mean, it was a very, uh, a very un, uh, unreliable business, I think, the record reviewing world. <laughs> and it's so much easier also to slag things off. You know, on the NME, you know, the, 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 the singles column was just really just kind of clay pigeon shooting, wasn't it? It was just taking pot shots or things. Because <laughs> that was the it was just a really simple way of being kind of funny. It's much harder to be funny and, and be kind at the same time. There's a nice review for uh, Eddie Grant's album, Can't Get Enough, again by Robin Katz, as we mentioned earlier, gets signed out of 10. Uh, it says a steamy collection of nine pulsating funk, reggae and disco tracks. I was kind of curious about Eddie Grant because he was obviously quite a big name in the 80s and I didn't really know an awful lot about him and I had a quick look on Wikipedia and just an absolutely incredible career. You know, he formed the Equals in 1965. They had a number one in 1968 with Baby Come Back. Six top 40 singles altogether. Then he had a heart attack and a collapsed lung in 1971. That's right, they're really interesting, yeah. And then came back with Electric Avenue, all those huge hits. Yeah, then moved into production and set up his own record label, Ice Records. And then it says on his Wikipedia page, he started branching out of music and learned how to tap dance and tried his hand at acting. Brilliant. And then in the 80s, he had another five top 40 hit singles, including number one, obviously with uh, I Don't Want to Dance. dance. Yeah. And then I, I was unaware of this as well. Apparently he invented a genre of music called Ring Bang in <laughs> 1994, which was, I think if I remember it correctly, it was something about kind of fusing all kinds of African music from different African countries into like a, a continent-wide musical style. And then it organised a festival in Tobago in 2000 for ring bang music. But, you know, a really fascinating character that you don't really kind of hear about anymore, Eddie Grant, but um, quite an interesting career he's had. Moving on to the next lyric page, we've got uh, Kate Robbins, More Than In Love. And next to Kate Robbins, probably the only time in their life they've ever been uh, side by side, Michael Jackson, your good friend, uh, Mark. I, I believe you were basically his best friend for a while, weren't you? But yes, I was. Well, I managed to interview him. It was only a phone interview, but quite something at the time, really. Because uh, it was when Thriller came out, before Thriller came out. And um, hard to imagine, but people thought he was obviously off the wall of being a huge hit. But, I mean, no one had any idea what was what was about to come. And we got a copy of Thriller in the office and played it, thought it was pretty good. And uh, I stuck my hand up and said I'd, I'd be prepared to wait till 11 o'clock in the evening for him to ring from Los Angeles. I sat there in the office drinking cans of beer and uh, and playing records. And eventually the phone rang and it was Michael Jackson or Michael Jackson's PR. And they were, he was really extraordinary because half of him was this kind of um, childlike, you know, 
awed kind of uh, voice talking about the magic of uh, of E.T. and uh, and Charles Dickens, uh, you know, Christmas Carol and all that, and children's stories. And the other half was this incredibly kind of adult, switched-on, you know, brilliant kind of record executive brain talking about, you know, the records that, He's got a kind of A&R mentality about the records he decided to, to cover for um, the tracks he'd covered for his album. So it was a weird combination of being completely switched on about music and then partly an act, clearly, this whole kind of, you know, you know this <laughs> mystified child. His great um, phone friend at the time was Adam Ant, and he and Adam Ant was talking about ringing up Adam Ant and how they would sit and talk about records and clothes and stuff. But it was very odd. But the other interesting thing was that we, we didn't really know very much about, you know, what was going on in his life at the time with the kind of, you know, Neverland and all that. And him talking about this place with the monkeys and the llamas was really riveting, you know, the playground rides. <laughs> and eventually I said, well, look, walk me through the house. Just just tell me, let's go down the corridor and tell me, you know, what, what you come to. He says, well, if you go down that corridor, then you turn right, you get to the cinema. And he had a private cinema, a 35-seater cinema, and he'd invite people over and they'd watch E.T., you know. And, uh, you know, he had fairground rides. He had a complete kind of, um, like a kind of mini Disneyland, which we all got to know about later on. But actually in 1982, whatever it was, whenever I did that interview, that was all news, you know. And uh, it was, he was extraordinary. It was really, it was fantastic to have got to talk to him. But And that was pretty much the last interview he did. He did one with the Daily Mirror with somebody in the Daily Mirror and then he never did another pop interview ever again. In your uh, excellent book, Rockstar Stole My Life, available at all good bookshops. Oh, right. Um, you talk about become, almost becoming a, a Michael Jackson expert on the media, you know, when he died and uh, suddenly you were being called by all kinds of news programmes and that must have been quite a strange few hours for you well it's very odd in that you know when there's a when there's a big news story like that you've got to get someone to stand it up and then and the, and the radio is desperate to get anybody at all who has any association that they can pass off as some kind of expertise or inside knowledge and i happened to be um yeah i went in and did i suppose it would have been the today program that's right when he died and uh, because I was in the building, every single other program had queued up outside. And I was just <laughs> taken to Radio 1, then Radio 2, and then World Service, and then uh, whatever it was. Just just did the rounds until Paul Gambaccini turned up. <laughs> I, remember, I remember just being told, actually, mate, you can go home. Gambo's in the building. And Gambo took over, uh, quacking on about uh, you know, his, uh, his great experience with the Jacksons, which was infinitely greater than mine. But it was rather weird. Because I was presented as being, yeah, not just uh, someone who knew a bit about him, but eventually as being billed as being his personal friend. And I have to say, look, I'm not his personal friend. I once had a telephone conversation with him. <laughs> but that's more than most other people have. So, uh, so that made that me good uh, quite valuable for the day. Usurped by Gambo. That sounds like a full B-side, doesn't it? It <laughs> is. It, it really is, yeah. Okay, flipping the page over, we've got a half-page black-and-white advert for a, a new single by The Arrhythmics. I guess this is before they'd had a hit. Because that's a very arty thing. That's Annie Lennox looking very strange with kind of white face paint. And yeah, she's doing them eyes, isn't she? Doing, doing weird eyes. eyes. And, uh, uh, you know, but it's interesting that they really believe they would have hits or they wouldn't be buying adverts and smash hits. Yeah. And one of the things they, they tell you about this record, it's produced by Connie Plank. That means absolutely nothing to a smash hits reader. Nothing at all. 
No, well, that was what really surprised me about this. This is why I just wanted to briefly mention it because I'd always associated him with Can and Noy and Kraftwerk and, and so on. But he actually produced so much stuff. I had a look on his Wikipedia page and he'd also worked with um, the Scorpions, Clanad, Flock of Seagulls, yeah. Killing Joke, and the Tourists. Who, so I guess that's why uh, he had that link with Eurythmics. And interesting because we, we mentioned U2 before as well. And there was another little thing on his Wikipedia page that really made me chuckle. It said, um, according to a radio documentary about Plank's life, it was Brian Eno's idea that uh, Plank should produce U2's Joshua Tree album instead of him. After being introduced to the band by Eno and a sh- having a short meeting, Plank turned down the job saying, I cannot work with this singer. After this episode, Plank then asked for more time to reconsider. In the meantime, he attended a U2 concert where Bono introduced Plank to the audience as their new producer, after which Connie Plank is said to have left the concert and never communicated further with any member of U2. <laughs> That's brilliant. So that was that. So I'm going to take you back home. Absolutely. That'll learn them. So the independent bits. That's amazing, isn't it? See, I think those things were really important parts of Smashes. This is by Ian Birch. Uh, and you know, again, it's the old melody maker. It's the old our past lives were kind of revisited by writing things like that. But uh, I mean, I think it's really interesting. He writes about Pig Bag and Joy Division, isn't it? And Red Crayola and Dead Kennedys, and you know, fair enough. You know, I mean, a these records are interesting, and the more adventurous people, the top end of the readership might go out and buy them. Top end age wise, yeah, it was act- acted as that bridge to what you go to after pop music just as you know you, you'd move through Completely. the schedule on radio radio one you know from the daytime pop stuff into you know a little more alternative in the evening and, and onto john peel and, and that's kind of what this is like yeah but this is john peel and hearing papa's got a brand new pig bag or whatever and you'd think okay this is this is more my my kind of thing you know and the au pairs but then again you know adam and the ants and the human league they were kind of you know esoteric fringe groups that actually moved into the mainstream so um you know, you could have said the same, th- same thing could have happened to any one of this lot, actually. Yeah, some of those Adamant's records are still in the... The early Adamant stuff on Do It is in the singles on the albums chart. Yeah, that's right. And Ian's writing about Kevin Armstrong here from his London-based band, Local Heroes. Kevin Armstrong went on to be the musical director of David Bowie at, um, at Live Aid. Uh, he was the one who ran his uh, the group with Tom Dolby in it and Matthew Seligman and all those guys. Yeah. And a member of Tin Machine. That's right. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, no, it's a very, it's a, a big part of it. It's really great that, that, that Smash It did stuff like that. It was really, uh, really adventurous and, and interesting. Yeah, very broad church. It yeah. is. There we are. Smash It's running about a certain ratio. Brilliant. <laughs> and talking of the broad church, we, we then move on to uh, a couple of pages on, on Squeeze, Square Deal Squeeze. Interviewed by Dave Hepworth with Glenn and Chris. And really looking at the qualities that, that Squeeze have. And it, I think summing up this interview, it's really about substance over style. Again, I use Adamant as a tool of comparison. Um, and they talk about, you know, I was mentioning before about kind of image and, and gimmicks compared to more kind of serious pop. And um, Dave Hepworth writes, even the most cursory squint at TOTP these days rams home a simple message. If you want to get ahead, get yourself an image. Slip on those crazy clothes. Appoint yourself the leader of a tribe. I think he's definitely talking about Adamant there. <laughs> make those folks at home sit up. Make them spill their tea. Squeeze, on the other hand, make the average stagehand look striking. Want to inquire whether there was ever a time when they completely lost faith in the band's commercial prospects? The matter of visuals obviously comes up. 
and they talk about the kind of the craft of their songwriting and um, how you know they they don't slag off Adam and or Sting, but they they say that they've got a very different approach and um, they think their chances of staying around longer are a lot better. What were your um, views on Squeeze? Oh, I love Squeeze, but they were one of those groups that were just left looking exposed when the video boom took off because, you know, Squeeze yeah. were um, just kind of five kind of regular, not very prepossessing blokes writing these fantastic songs. And suddenly it became all about image. It became all about the way you looked and it became all the way you sold yourself, not by slogging around the tour circuit anymore. You had to produce videos. And they never looked comfortable at all in any videos. They couldn't act. They looked self-conscious. You know, there wasn't a, an obviously supremely glamorous member of the group. Um, you know, they, 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 there's a picture of them with this feature where, they, you know, Glenn's got a, a clarinet and, uh, you know, uh, the bass player guy, his name I've not forgotten, has got a, a, got, a, got a trumpet. And they're all trying to make an old, clutching, interesting instrument to try and make themselves look, uh, you know, <laughs> colourful and fascinating and eccentric. And Chris Difford's wearing a flat cap and all that. You know, you just thought they it's yeah. just, they look it's, agonised by it. You know? It's not flying, that, is it? I, I think the ratio, of, the ratio of pop kids putting uh, Adamant or Human League on the wall compared to cutting out that picture of Squeeze was probably at 1,000 to 1. You know, it was <laughs> not many were going to be uh, sticking that up with a bit of blue tack, were they? No, but also they what percentage of the people who bought their records were smash hits readers? You know, with Duran Duran, a vast, vast percentage of the people who bought those records read smash hits and were teenage teenagers, you know. Mm. But with Squeeze there would be some, but a lot of those Squeeze records just bought by, I don't know, just just the general public, weren't they? Just everybody. Yeah. They had mass appeal, you know. Yeah, well Dave highlights some of the lyrics like uh, you left my ring by the soap. And that's a, you know, it's a very kind of adult Lyric, isn't it? You know, their their songs are often about proper adult relationships and uh, oh yeah, when things go a bit wrong. When and, things go you know. wrong too, completely. No, there's nothing terribly optimistic about uh, about squeeze songs. You know, they're all about uh, naughty goings on on summer holidays, uh, remembered from the past, or or the disasters of modern married life, or whatever. You know, <laughs> yeah. on relationships going wrong. Hard to relate to as an eleven year old Adamant fan. Yeah, really. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> but but we covered them quite a lot and things like that. Yeah. We thought they were, we loved them. Thought they were really interesting and funny and characterful. They had interesting things to say. It was much easier, actually, talking about Squeeze, much easier to cover groups that you didn't particularly like because you had to look at them really hard and think, what is appealing for a 12, 13, 14-year-old about this band? And how can we, how can we represent that? Um, whereas someone like Squeeze just thought, well, everyone loves Squeeze, they're great records. But then you'll start with this, how can we, how can we get people involved, you know? <laughs> Apart from the fact they say quite characterful things. Turning a few pages on it, Mark, I think you said you'd like to maybe speak a, a little bit about the gear and the T-shirts and that kind of thing that's on the next few pages. Oh, well, I thought they were an important part of it, don't you? Yeah. You know, bondage jackets, 12 quid. <laughs> PVC straight, 790, clash jeans. <laughs> motorbike jackets i mean i don't know then the way you expressed your affection for a group here we are look giant patches for a pound toya <laughs> killing joke rod stewart rod stewart i wonder how many of those they sold christ it's been very hard predicting how many to get printed up wasn't it you know how many devo yeah. patches should we manufacture i've got no idea we don't want to we're left with a warehouse full of them you know Twelve thousand. Twelve thousand. i know i know <laughs> But uh, no, I just thought that was a really interesting part of the whole 
mix of the the world at the time is that you know if you liked a group you know you could go out and buy the t-shirt and buy all the all the merch and and, and walking around advertising the fact that you liked them and that was the tribe you were in where it was a really important part of the whole uh, the whole equation really and i don't know if that's quite so much now i don't know i mean if when people go to big arenas to see an act they probably wear the kind of thing that act would be wearing themselves but i don't know if that whole tribal thing of the t-shirts still exists to the same extent not sure no i don't think so no t-shirts and badges we've, we've done some issues of top uh, we've done some issues of smashes before when where there was a bad top 10 as well wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah badge top 10 it yeah. was uh, yeah yeah. It's a big part yeah. of it. Although I do like, in, in the midst of all the you know, Clash gear and giant patches and things like that, there's an advert for angling times in there with two free floats. Well, that's, again, that's, a, that's an EMAP thing as a whole. Yeah. Rod Sop, when not eating a rare steak, would have, would have said, a little quarter page has come up here and stuck that in as a free. But I know, ridiculous, ridiculous. And then we get to the letters page. Oh, yeah. And, um, well, lots going on on here. As ever, I mean, you mentioned that you used to get sacks and sacks of mail into the magazine. I mean, whose job was it to kind of go through these and pick out you know, what what was going to be in the mag? Well, I think I think one of the guys, I think Sam or, or Bev used to just, just open them all up and give, give them a cursory read. But otherwise, you just got presented with, I mean, I edited the letters column for quite a long time, actually, because I, I, I'd invented the concept of the black type. And um, which was, you know, which uh, which really took off, actually. It was brilliant. I just invented this idea that the black type was something that came out at night and answered the letters. And its mother was a, <laughs> a, a visual display unit and its father was a bottle of t- Tipex. And uh, it called itself the black type. And it suddenly took off and everyone started writing to the black type. And we had to invent black type T-shirts. And Tom Hibbert took it, took it over from me and made it even more psychedelic and extraordinary. It was really good fun. But uh, no, it's a big, big part of the magazine. And can you imagine anybody who ever got a letter printed Smash It's was so thrilled and so grateful and would still have a copy of it to this day. You know, it would have meant so much. And I think it's so interesting how um, the difference of tone between the boys writing and the girls. There's a girl writing in here. Girls often wrote in just about personalities, really. And blokes wrote in about issues. Even at the age of 14, there's a girl writing here called uh, Janice Hudson. And she says, Dear Carol Klein, nobody cares whether Hazel O'Connor is fat or not, but suggesting that Ian Gillen is fat is outrageous. <laughs> Ian Gillen is the best-looking person on this earth, and his body is fantastic. There is no one half so lovely as this underrated genius, and now you know Janice Hudson. <laughs> and there's a bloke here who says... Uh, He's a guy called Jim Turner from Sidcup in Kent. And his letter says, Bob Marley died on the 11th of May, and unlike John Lennon and Elvis Presley, he received little mention from our national press. I can only hope this reaction, uh, from this reaction, that Bob will not be commercialised and that his memory will not be exploited by the record companies owning the rights to anything he sang, played or wrote. Rest in peace, Bob. And you're thinking, dream on, Jim Turner. But, but anyway, well, that's a really, that's a real different. If that isn't too grossly um, crass and sexist, uh, and sexist to generalisation, girls who infinitely wrote infinitely more interesting letters, letters wrote about personalities really, and about the characters and the idiosyncrasies of pop stars, and blokes often just wrote about issues and things, <laughs> and movements. And, and why you know. don't you have more metal music in the magazine? Yeah, why isn't there more metal? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And how whoever it was who reviewed the singles last week who didn't like my favourite group should be taken out and shot. Because that's the other thing, is that at this age, you can't deal with 
the criticism of bands you like. You think that's kind of wrong. You know, you believe that this group is is absolutely, uh, you know, completely lovable uh, and you, you can't contain and deal with the idea that anyone's got something negative to say about them. It just seems to be, a, it, it's factually correct that they're great, you know. So um, it's a it's a very it's a very lively age to be writing letters. There's uh, there's some stuff in here about futurism and again I think this is something because we we recently did uh, the issue before this with Kim Wilde and Stray Cats and we were talking there about how new romanticism or new romantics wasn't called that then but there's stuff in here about being a futurist band and and that gets mentioned again in in the on the second page of the letters um, someone says someone called Sarah Merson from Bath says. Can someone please tell me what a futurist group actually is? With the exception of perhaps Visage, I think, though I'm probably wrong about them too, I don't know of any. If you read the interviews with all the other groups, they're at pains to point out that they don't want to be classed as just another bandwagon jumping futurist group and are just doing their own thing. People talk as if futurist bands are in abundance, but I'm beginning to believe that there aren't any. (laughs) (laughs) Futurist is a great word. Because I mean, it became a really big thing that because being a future, the best example of a futurist is Gary Newman. And part of the reason Gary Newman was popular was not just that he made these fantastic records, they really have endured. But that Gary Newman was this kind of alienated, um, misunderstood, um, you know, uh, sort of rejected soul, this sort of tortured, fragile, um, you know, too frail for the modern world, you know. And I think a lot of a lot of um, a lot of te- young teenagers you kind of felt the same way that they were at that stage where they weren't getting on with their parents and their brothers and sisters. And they were, you know what I mean? And you're stuck in your bedroom alone, feeling alienated and, and, uh, and removed. And you you kind of identified with the futurist bands, you know. So um, I don't know. It became a it became a big issue that the people who liked it absolutely loved that music and the people who didn't thought it was ludicrous and pretentious and uh, should be given a vigorous shooing. You mentioned uh, Tom Hibbert before, you were talking about him sort of taking over Black Type at a later date. If you sort of sum up Tom's legacy in terms of smash hits, what, what did he bring to the magazine, do you think? Well, he was terribly funny, you know, he's, I mean, in real life, he didn't like very much pop music at all. Um, you know, I lived with him for quite a long time in the uh, before we got married and uh, he only liked he liked the Kinks and uh, he liked um, you know he liked Iggy Pop and he liked Julian Cope and he liked um, Rocky Erickson and about three or four other things and that was about it and the rest of the time he just took the piss out of the group so it was perfect for him being on Smash Hits because he didn't really like anything and all he was doing was looking for the way that he could send them all up <laughs> and make them into cartoon characters uh, and I think he did that brilliantly. You know, Morrissey was this kind of foppish clown waving gladioli around. Um, you know, Kraftwerk were these uh, absurd robotic androids. Um, Spanner Ballet and Duran Duran were these kind of daft-looking characters in, uh, in 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 blouses and tea towels and you know pixie boots and with big hair. And I mean, he just he just he's really good at sending people up, you know, and also very very funny and just just inventing this kind of fantasy world. He would sort of put, he used to do the trails for Smashes. Because after I left, we didn't really overlap. I got him in there, but I'd go by there as well, Q and Q. And he would say, you know, next next issue would be, um, uh, we'd always feature groups like the Flying Savaloy Brothers and Janet, or the Human Source <laughs> Bands of the Orinoco, plus Duran Duran and, uh, you know, and Nick Kershaw. 
So he just made up this kind of fantasy nonsense. But it's brilliant. He had a brilliant technique for interviewing people where he, he wouldn't really ask any questions. He would just sit there looking disapproving. <laughs> and, be, and to fill the silence, people would just start just, you know, coming up with all sorts of ridiculous stuff, um, you know, because they, they, they were just embarrassed that, that they weren't being asked anything, really. So he got great confessions out of people. Neil Tennant told me that soon after he left Smash Hits and, you know, had, had a hit single, he was interviewed by, by Tommy for... Um, for Smash Hits, after West End Girls, I think. And he just thought, this is going to be such fun. You know, here I am, I've had a number one record, everything I've ever wanted in life I've achieved. And he sat down with Tom, and Tom just sat there with his tape recorder rolling and said, uh, so, Neil, so, number one. I mean, you know, what's next? You know, that kind of, you know, and kind of shrugging as if somehow his achievement was kind of, uh, was somehow rather mediocre. Neil was kind of panicked <laughs> by this and sort of, you know, went into this extraordinary interview where he, uh, you know, was just uh, talking about having doubts about it all. And maybe he should be giving the money to charity or whatever. And I don't know. It's just, uh, it's, it's really, really interesting. But he was great, Tom. Really funny, really characterful. And he was a big part of it. I, th- I think that thing about not taking music too seriously is, you know, what makes Smash It so great, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you talked earlier on about the dividing line between Enemy and, and Smash It's, and, and that's really a big part of it, that Smash It's would send everyone up. It wasn't they – they weren't mean and cruel, particularly, but they, they just gloried in the in the fun of it all and um, – The ridiculousness of it all. Yeah. Yeah, and it was affectionate too, actually. I mean, it really Absolutely. was. It was completely affectionate. It didn't mean any harm, but they just thought that, you know, and even the, even the, it's like Private Eye. Actually, Private Eye is very similar. In Private Eye, even the people they approve of, they take the piss out of. Fair enough. That's their job. They don't just take the piss out of the politicians that they, 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 they didn't vote for. They take the piss out of absolutely everybody. That's their job. And, uh, and it's just a way of making people get involved you know if you presented morrissey if you condensed him into this clownish figure with his gladioli and his and his hearing aid and his daft dancing and his shirt you know slashed open to the waist you sort of had a visual image of who this guy was and you could kind of uh, you know he became a a, a kind of a, a character that everyone could, could get a handle on really I think some of that humor as well you, you know obviously you started q magazine and some of that was carried on through Q as, as well, wasn't it? Um, yes, I suppose it was, really. Um, yeah, it's the same sort of thing. Q's attitude was quite similar, actually, which is it took the piss out of it, again, out of absolutely everybody. <laughs> uh, all the people we loved and all the people we hated. And, uh, again, fond, affectionate, you know, harmless, just an entertaining way of getting everybody. I mean, often a really good issue of Q, I think, that the, even if you didn't like the groups, like Smashers, even if you didn't like any of the groups they covered, the thing was sufficiently entertaining in itself if you want to to want to to want to buy every every issue it wasn't to do with who they covered it was the way they covered them that was what was interesting and so we move on from the letters we get the gigs a couple more lyrics and then on the back the human league, the league. in color with the obviously the uh, the famous lineup of the human league uh, Phil and the girls uh, posing outside some industrial wasteland, basically. <laughs> Only 10 minutes' walk from where we're currently recording this. That's Apparently right. So. Yeah. yeah, it's yes. just around the corner for you, isn't it, in Sheffield? Yeah. It is, yeah. Just uh, up the road in Sheffield here. What a great line-up. The human... That is a particularly fantastic story, the Human League story. I mean, I think he, I think he really did see them dancing in a club. I think that's a true story. And the idea that Phil Oakey, 
you know, when the other two members of the group had left and looked like they were going to be the ones that had all the success, and that happened to so many bands, you know, happened to Depeche Mode, you know, how do you react when the, you know, what could have been the real stars and the real engine room of the group have left? And he sees these two girls who effectively can't dance. You know, they, 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 they're just, they're, they're, they just somehow represented the readership. Every girl looked at that, those, that group on top of the pop and thought, that could be me. You know, there was nothing beyond the realms of their imagination, was there? You weren't, you weren't dazzled by the choreography. You just thought, wow, <laughs> somebody like me has got up on stages and is a pop group. It's fantastic. And they're still going, you know, the leagues still exist, don't they? Phil and the two girls are still the band, which is fantastic, I think. It's wonderful. <laughs> Great poster. Yeah, it is. Properly good group. I'm just thinking it's it's quite a, it's almost a parallel story with Adam and the Ants, you know, isn't it? It is, well, yeah, the, yeah. The thing about being kind of in a very different musical place, but then becoming totally embraced by the mainstream and perhaps leaving your old audience behind a little yeah. bit. Yeah, but having the nerve yeah, to go out yeah. there and chase the pop market and having all that success, mm. they were brilliant. They made great records, incredible records. So we've come to the end of the magazine. But before we say goodbye, looking back at your time at Smash It's, I know you said it's a long time ago and this this magazine was kind of from, from your early days working on the mag and you went on to, to edit it. But what are the standout moments for you working on the mag you know when when you think of smash hits what what do you think of um well i think of just the the team on the inside really what a hoot it was i mean it was just such fun as i said before it was so liberating because we'd all worked on those uh, yeah the, the music press i mean it, 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 the melody maker and the enemy on the outside it probably would look like a really glamorous place to be it wasn't actually it was quite very competitive <laughs> and quite a difficult atmosphere and and being in a in a world entirely populated by mostly male rock critics is quite hard and quite judgmental. And you were constantly agonised by whether or not your taste was right. Is it okay to like so-and-so, you know? And I think we were all just giddy with the fun of being at Smash Hits. It was fantastic. Let's so say you just sit there and think, right, so what have we got this fortnight? We've got Hazel Dean. How are we going to cover her? You know, Toya, fantastic. Um, you know, just trying to think of of just ways to, 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 to cover these people for an audience that were so, so optimistic and enthusiastic and, and that it meant so much to them. And, you know, no, I thought it was great. In terms of actual moments, I don't know. I mean, uh, the Michael Jackson interview was fun. Um, you know, I didn't do much. I mean, I regret now that I didn't do more of those. And I remember sending Peter Martin off to go interview Wham in China. Why I didn't do that myself, I've got absolutely no idea. I went on the road with, with Frankie Goes to Hollywood. That was pretty good fun. I went to the San Remo Pop Festival on a plane. That's a smash hits memory for you. On a plane with Frankie Goes to Hollywood, we had Frankie, all of Spandau Ballet, all of Duran Duran, Sade, Chaka Khan, Bronsky Beat, uh, and Talk Talk. And I think somebody else as well, all on the same aircraft. I remember thinking, if this if this old barge goes down, you know, then A, what's the insurance? And B, you know, what what will the yeah, the Cocteau twins will probably have a hit next week because the, the whole thing will be cleared out. But that was fun. That was a very eighties moment. No, it was, they were very exciting and really good times. I'm very uh, I really enjoyed all of it. Nothing but the fondest memories. Yeah. Well, what about taking Bananarama out on the town? Oh, yeah, Bananarama. <laughs> my God. I took him out on a, on a photo shoot. We got a, a Lady Di and Charles lookalike. We photographed them at Buckingham Palace. 
We took them to a, um, a yeah, they wanted to go to, a, to the new burger restaurant on Oxford Street and all had three quarter pound burgers. Then lay around feeling unwell, thinking <laughs> they'd eaten too much. <laughs> I took them up the fire monument. What else did we do? We took them to the sanctuary in Covent Garden and they had a kind of a, I don't know, they, they went swimming or whatever. And it was, no, it was very good fun. They were great. They were a hoot. They were brilliant. Yeah, and I think there's there's also one cover of Smash It's that we possibly need to at least mention, and that was one that, well, it came about because somebody wrote into a TV program. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> oh, Lord, I forgot all about that. Yeah, no, we had this idea. Was it my idea? Did they come to us? I can't remember. But Jim Will Fix It was the huge program at the time. I mean, really was massive. It had an audience of, I think, 19 million, maybe 20 million. And they wanted to fix it. Someone had written in and said, could you fix it for us to be with a pop star on the cover of Smash Hits? And I thought, that is, I cannot pass this opportunity up. That is fantastic publicity. And, uh, of course, I couldn't get a pop star to do it. They didn't want to do it. So it had to be somebody who was desperate for the publicity. And the only person I could get to was Marilyn, who was, you remember Marilyn, who was a friend of Boy George's, sort of androgynous, strange uh, creature. And uh, it turned out to be a nightmare, which is just too long a story to tell. But it was just awful. The girl came down, the girl who won the competition, who was quite tricky in herself and demanded £50 cash in spending money when we met her at uh, King's Cross and uh, got to the the studio. And, um, yeah, I can remember there was... She was preceded by two girls who dressed up in Victorian... They wanted to dress up in Victorian policewoman costumes. Uh, Then they... Uniforms, rather. Then by a 14-year-old boy who was learning French and wanted to go to France and try out his French, ordering a French meal in a restaurant in Normandy with his parents. All this sort of stuff about people wanting to join the sea cadets or whatever. And then we had me being interviewed with this girl and with... um, with Marilyn by Jimmy Savile. And Jimmy Savile was a weird character. Oh, my Lord, he was weird. Really? <laughs> I can remember standing there watching in the backstage, watching it on the monitors when he came on with the French owner of the restaurant uh, that was going to feature in the thing before us. And this guy saying, Qu'est-ce que c'est? C'est incroyable! <laughs> this awful man in his kind of yellow pastel tracksuit with his ridiculous cigar and his chair where he pressed a button and a, and a teapot came out of one arm and, a, and an ashtray with a lit cigar on the other. And he was ludicrous, really. And he called me Mr. Smash It's now then, now then, as it happens, as it happens, on this day, on this lovely day with this lovely girl and this lovely man, did you, did you or did you or not have the most fantastic time of your life with this pop star? You know, every question you answer, asked could, could only be answered yes or no. Is the worst interviewer. It's the idea that he would completely dominate the whole thing. But anyway, we eventually got the picture and we eventually put them on the cover. And actually, it was quite a big seller. Uh, but Marilyn was the nightmare. And, you know, I've spent more time with... I mean, that, that, we used to have a tape of that. And uh, we used to get it out when people came over for years, uh, up until the point where Jimmy Savile was disgraced. And people would say after dinner and say, well, okay, any entertainment people would say, can we watch the Jimmy Savile tape? My kids loved it. They thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. Now then, now then, Mr. Smash It's Mr. <laughs> it was called Mr. Smash. I couldn't remember my name. Mr. Smash It's what, you know, on this lovely day with these lovely people. Now then, how'd you feel? Oh, it was dreadful. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> happy memories. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, thanks, Mark, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to check out our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, where you'll find the links to the issue of Smash It's that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists, so you can enjoy your ride on the carousel to its fullest. And, of course, you can check out our previous episodes, playlists and scans, our back issues, if you will. And if you want to support us by buying us a coffee, we would be forever in your debt. It's coffee.com forward slash giddypoppod is where you can go to do that. That's ko-fi.com forward slash giddypoppod. And come and say hello to us at giddypoppod on Twitter, Facebook, and of course, Instagram. And we'll say hello back. I should also mention while we're here that we recently were featured (laughs) briefly on another (laughs) fantastic podcast. There's a great comedy podcast that comes out of Australia called Sizzletown. And our episode with Richard Drew that was originally out... Oh, Oh. Sometime last year, wasn't it? No, it was this year. Was it? It was this year. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> but it was an issue, the issue with OMD on the front from 1983. <laughs> and there's a feature on Sizzletown called Pod Farts, where, <laughs> um, <laughs> where Tony, the host, scrolls through various podcasts and just... If there's an unidentified possible um, trouser burp noise... <laughs> He'll feature it. And, yeah, we got featured on that, didn't we? It was an honour and a privilege. Yeah, yeah. I think we've ascertained 99% with Richard that it was a squeaky chair. Or well, he says it was. Yeah, anyway. yeah, well, it was a squeaky chair. And I, I did go back to the to the original audio just to check that it hadn't been tampered with just for comic effect. <laughs> yeah, so... But now that the noise is, is genuinely there and, uh, well, I think I think we, we get, you know it gets used to good effect. Absolutely. <laughs> but we can categorically state there were no... Wind-breaking moments on that show. No. Not that we're aware of. Not that we're aware of. It's time, once again, for... This is the segment where we provide examples of people flagrantly breaking wind during their own podcast. And I have a great example here from one of my favourite podcasts out of the UK, The Giddy Carousel of Pop. Now, this is a show where two very well-spoken English gents, Simon Galloway and Gavin Hogg, uh, go through an old issue of Smash Hits magazine from the 80s, one page at a time, and it's fascinating and hilarious stuff if you're old enough to recall that era. But this is from a recent episode... Uh, a segment where they were discussing uh, the band Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark and they were talking about Semaphore and their guest, who I think is on Zoom, Mr Richard Drew, chimes in. Listen closely. There's anyone else out there that's more of an expert in Semaphore than I am? I used to do it. I used to oh, do really? Semaphore. Oh well, God. I can only go so far. I was a sea cadet um, back in ah, the late the, 70s. There it was. And that is not being doctored by us. Now, Matt thinks it could be a chair squeak. So can we just play the last bit again, Matt? I was a sea cadet um, back in the late 70s. No, I'm calling it, Matt. That is definitely a candidate for... And just very quickly, I just wanted to mention Mark's wonderful book, Rockstar Stole My Life. But there's lots more in there about smash hits as well as his life before Smash It's and, and after. And it, it's a really fascinating look through the whole kind of kaleidoscope of pop, really, um, going through the decade. So do go and read that if you have never read it. 
very highly recommended by both of us. Yeah, well, <laughs> judging by the fact that we've both got copies here to hand. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, where where Mark's talking about the Michael Jackson interview and then what happened when Michael Jackson died, that's in there uh, in a lot of detail. And there's stuff in there as well about the San Remo plane trip that he mentions as well with Frankie Goes to Hollywood. So, yeah, very, very highly recommended. And also, as well, it would be wrong of us not to say thank you to Marco Peroni for very generously giving us quite a big chunk of time. We may have a little bit more from him at a later date. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, keep your eyes peeled uh, for a little a little bonus episode of the Giddy Carousel of Pop uh, where you'll get to hear uh, more of our chat with Marco because, uh, well, it's too good not to share. Oh, that was pure gold as well, wasn't it? Yeah, so thank you very much, Marco, for giving up your time so generously. Yeah, and uh, thanks once again for listening and we'll see you next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Bye! Bye.